Welcome to the Jim Cornette Experience, folks. Today on the program, our favorite turkey promotion pick this week to soar with the eagles instead of scratching with the chickens. We're going to talk about that, some old-fashioned territory talk, and a whole lot more. And to join me, Hawaiian Brian, the podcasting lion, the king of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, Mr. Co-host to you, he's everybody's favorite podcasting butterball, the great Brian Last, everybody. Aloha, Jim. A pleasure to be here once again. To be fair, there are other podcasters who actually look like a butterball. I, of course, am in fantastic shape. Well, that's what I'm I'm trying to figure out, because there are very few pieces of photographic evidence of your 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 uh, visage out there. Uh, you're a very, uh, not secretive, but you're a very private person. But I've seen you many times, not lately. But for some reason, whenever any of these dipshits on the internet want to blast you, they're like, well, Brian Last sits on his fat ass in his basement. and blah, blah, blah. They're all convinced, and they, he just sounds like a fat guy. They're convinced that you're the second coming of Happy Humphrey. They're convinced that you're just an obese, bulbous, protrudinous type of person. It's true. I don't know. Come on now. I've seen you over various periods of your life, including just in the just the last decade, not the one we're in now, but the previous decade I've seen you in person. And and I wouldn't I wouldn't call you, you know, Mr. Universe, but you're a very athletic, a very trim, a very fit person. You exude good health. I don't why do these people have this this uh opinion of you? This picture of you in their minds that you're God dead, that you have your own gravitational pull. It's true. I'm just a big lard ass and I sit here in my basement <laughs> and I talk to all you people and then I eat Cheetos and Doritos and and that's it. That's my whole life. And then I get on Cheetos, Twitter. Doritos. A go go. That's all I do all day. It's all true. And uh no, I remember one of the biggest compliments I ever got in 2006 when me, when we were hanging out, me and my then girlfriend and you and Stacy in the city, you said, Brian, you're in better shape than all the guys in Ring of Honor. <laughs> and I remember thinking, God damn. I mean, no one there is really big or anything, but that's a good compliment. Thank you very much. And I you, was. You, and I was. Yeah, you, you, and you scratched, you scratched every bit of six feet tall. So right there, you were a giant. But, um, <laughs> Oh boy, but you know my. Do you have any Thanksgiving revel, rev, revolutions? Thanksgiving resolutions. We're going to get a head start on New Year's. You have any Thanksgiving resolutions? Do people do that? Do people make resolutions for Thanksgiving? They do when I just make it up out of my ass right here. Ah, for programming. Then I don't. Well, I've got a couple. <laughs> One of them is I'm going to read my emails from the last three weeks. I have not. I've, I've something had to go over the last few weeks because we're in the home stretch, and I'll have you know that I packaged, signed, wrapped up, 
and ready to go to the post office, 100 packages on Thanksgiving Day before I had my Cajun fried turkey. A hundred packages to the cult of Cornette, to the Cornette's collectibles customers. I'm in the home stretch and I'm trying to kick this shit into high gear. And what's Cajun fried turkey? Well, we had the Cajun fried turkey shipped down from the Cajun fried turkey place down in Texas. Oh, it's different. It's it's a deep fried turkey. It's a full bird <laughs> doing the Seinfeld. Is it popular in Homa? It's uh, I don't know about Homa. I think they just dip it in one of the canals down there, the tur- feathers <laughs> and all, and just start gnawing on it. Here, grab that fucking turkey by its feet, dip it upside down in one of the canals, get some sewage on it, and we'll start chawing on it. That's the way they do down in the real South Louisiana. But um, where was it going? Oh, the home stretch of the packages. Then I'll talk about the turkey. Um, I am figuring. Because I'm, except for recording, as I mentioned, I'm in a one-week period where I'm doing nothing all day but uh, signing stuff and putting it in packages. And all the domestic orders, outstanding. In other words, the people who haven't gotten their shit yet. All the domestic orders that were placed should be in the mail by Monday, December 6th. And the internationals will be following, obviously, that the rest of that week. Um... Australia and New Zealand is still all fucked up. And we're hearing we're not only from their folks over there that are saying that their mail is is backed up in various things, but also I'm still hearing that if I try to send something, the post office here, I've had I've had two responses. Bree says they'll send it right back to me. Uh I heard elsewhere that they might just hold on to it for whatever, but point being, if you ordered merchandise and you're in Australia and New Zealand and you probably know that you're screwed up anyway, but all hope is not lost because I have everything. I'll either send it when I get the all clear, or if we do not get the all clear, I will be contacting those folks uh, later on in the month of December to see if there's any backup plan, but everybody will be taken care of. So I, I personally service all of my customers. That's gross. And I'm I'm getting serviced. Ooh. Speaking of which, before we go into the turkey, I, I, I'll take this point to remind everybody: on Thanksgiving weekend, give thanks if you don't have Spectrum for your internet, cable, or telephone provider. I mentioned last week on the program: since they're incompetent, they don't know how their shit works, and they're stealing my money that instead of trying to talk to one of their incompetent but friendly customer service representatives over the phone again who kill you with kindness and then do absolutely nothing that they goddamn say they'll do, instead of trying to get my money back that they're stealing from me every month, I'm just going to remind everybody on every program that goes out to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people around the world, fuck Spectrum, they're crooks and thieves and liars. Don't use any of their services. But I'll tell you what, that Cajun fried turkey was good. Still, if we have some left, we're doing sandwiches. You don't crave a traditional Thanksgiving, just a turkey and, you know, sweet potatoes with marshmallows on it and well, we had stuffing that. and had cranberry that. sauce. and Didn't have that. I've never had cranberry sauce in my life because I hate cranberries in any form. There are certain things I find that I hate in one form, but I find acceptable in other forms. Anything like that for you? In terms of food? No. 
Okay. <laughs> no, something is unacceptable. It's unacceptable. It can't be disguised. Can't be mitigated. Can't be dressed up. It's it's still a fucking bunch of medicine in the spoonful of sugar. And if something's bad, it's bad. But you've never had it, so you don't know if it's bad. No, I've had it enough to know it's bad. How much have you had it? Just once. No, <laughs> no it's bad. <laughs> How many times have I got to get food poisoning to make you happy? Did you get food poisoning? No. So, <laughs> so that doesn't even apply here. I'm just, well, if, if I'm going to just sit and just wolf down a bunch of shit that I don't like until I puke just to prove to you that I don't like it, that's kind of egregious, isn't it? All right. So tell me about this turkey. Well, it's a full bird. <laughs> uh, it's... <laughs> See, I'm going to tell you about my bird. No, uh, normally, and we had all the things that you just mentioned, along with uh, gravy. You didn't mention gravy. You didn't mention the uh, the brown and serve rolls. Uh, I don't think mashed potatoes was in there. Broccoli and cheese casserole. We but, had mashed potatoes also. Oh, you had mashed potatoes on, on the side with your fucking... Chinese food or the whatever. The kids requested. No, I wanted the sweet potatoes with the marshmallows. The one time a year I have that stupid thing. I want to well, have that. Why, I get up mashed potatoes any day of the week. No, why have you got to insult all the people and me being one of them who like sweet potatoes and, and mushroom or mushrooms, marshmallows, not just oh, any, not just once a year, but any old time that they might be set in front of you. And there were, it's a stupid thing and we're stupid. I didn't say that. You said that. You said those words. It's Did I say you're stupid? Thing. I didn't say you're stupid. Well, if I'm sitting there eating a stupid thing, I must be pretty fucking stupid. Not necessarily. See, you're playing semantics with the words. You could be a very intelligent person eating a I'm stupid sandwich. It happens all the time. Semantics with the semantics. Is that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. Regardless. Well, you had that. But I was talking about my bird. <laughs> yes, you See, were. I'll have you know that Stacy makes the best turkey from scratch. If you get the turkey at the store and you stuff the turkey and you baste the turkey and you season the turkey and you put the turkey in the, and you bring the turkey out and then you put the roofie in the turkey and all that. She makes the roofie in the turkey. Well, I was doing Cosby. So I went into that. (laughs) Um, She makes the best turkey that I've ever had. She uh, not only does she uh, it's still juicy and moist and tender, but what uh, one of the things that she does is halfway through, she flips it upside down. And that way, nothing gets too dried out or nothing gets too soggy. But since it's just the the two and a half of us, because Harley Quinn doesn't eat that much turkey. It was just going to be the two and a half of us dish. Why go to. All the problem of fixing the giant bird and etc. Do the sides, and we'll have the the bird shipped in. And there, there's a, and I can't remember the website, but there's a place that I and I'm not going to plug them anyway because they've charged me full price and they're not paying us. But they ship different foods from different restaurants all across the country. That people might, you know, that reminds them of home or whatever. And the and the place that does the cage, the fried turkeys, the Cajun fried turkeys, was on there, and we got the the Cajun fried turkey. And boy, howdy! It, and it's not too hot. It's spicy. It's Cajun spicy, but it's not ridiculous. It won't make your tongue swell up or anything. But you know, it's there. It's not. It's a turkey with a kick to it. 
And, and so that's, that's been, uh, and that's still in the refrigerator. We're still doing some of that. I think next year we have to do something differently because everyone wanted the white meat. We now have just thighs. We just have just <laughs> giant thighs and the carcass in the fucking fridge still. And I said, yeah, throw it away. No one's eating all these, all this fucking dark meat, throw it away. So I think next year we'll just get nothing but turkey breasts. Well, now isn't, isn't that a bit racist? How's that racist? The dark meat? Get out of here. You're you only want the white you're, meat? You're you don't ridiculous. want the dark meat? I want the lean protein. How about I put it that way? And yeah, and yeah, you just have, you have a bunch of fat thighs in your, in your refrigerator right now. I have a turkey, the remains of a turkey, including two big fat thighs big on the fat turkey. Thigh. You know, that reminds me of the time that I was invited to a dinner party at Jeffrey Dahmer's house. But I got there late, and boy, did I get the cold shoulder. Anyway, folks, there'll be, um, yeah. Uh, well, this is as good a time as any to welcome a new sponsor to the program. <laughs> folks, I want to remind you, does your co-host of your podcast possibly have an unsavory attachment to or constant craving for French toast? Does he frequent his local franchise location of the French Toast Chalet. Is the annoying squeaking of his office furniture possibly caused by a well-fatted ass, the result of far too many <laughs> servings of said French Toast? Symptoms of this condition may be a borderline near appreciation for Kenny Olivier and or the Hardly Boys, failure to tender you your proper due in the form of highest-praised outright bribes or lavish gifts of wrestling pop culture collectibles, for the vaulted castle cornet, on occasion making affirmative grunting noises or near agreement on any point expressed on the part of Uncle Dave, being an absolute mark for anybody bearing the given name of Charlie, but most especially anyone answering to that name hailing from Starkville, Mississippi, and also one of the other symptoms may be a fine dusting of powdered sugar or maple syrup in his facial hair. The same dusting or syrup residues may well appear in any crop of body hair as well, should he indulge his habit whilst dining naked and not manscaped. If any what? of these symptoms have been present during your frequent interactions with Mr. Last, please seek professional help for him immediately. The services of a certain barrister may be required if you yourself has been injured, offended, or given food cravings at any time during these interactions. We thank you, Michael from Arizona for bringing that PSA to our attention. PSA. And he attached a big old Crap. pile of a picture of a big old pile of French toast. Can I say That's something what to look out for? Please, please do. I'm not even going to rip this guy just because I'm in a great mood and this is so stupid. <laughs> so I'm not going to rip this clown, but it's so oh, wrong on so many different levels. Clown now. It's so, I, so I'm not saying anything bad about this guy, but this whole thing is so fucking ridiculous. I do like some of the Kenny Omega stuff, the Young Bucks you're wrong about. It's the French Toast Chateau, not Chalet. <laughs> Obviously, you're a regular listener. You listen well, to we, the he, intro of the show, you would know he that. Thought you might, he thought you might branch out into like a ski resort. Yeah, and then he branched out into weird, twisted, erotic fan fiction where I'm naked eating French toast <laughs> and dripping sugar and syrup all over myself. Have a good weekend, sir. Thank you for your uh, submission. Thank you for your submission. <clears throat> Michael from Arizona. Um, 
Hey, I got big news. This uh, this actually is news because I haven't said this yet on anything that we've done. Um, the cameos are coming back to town. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Corny's cameos are coming to town. He's making a video and charging a lot of money for it. And I don't have the rest of the words yet. Thank you. Thank you. I was trying to help. I was trying to help you. I thought that was applause. Anyway, (laughs) um, yes, it's Christmas cameo chaos. Because now that I have a grip on the remaining, as I mentioned, I've just packed up a hundred packages on Thanksgiving day alone uh, by December the 6th. The domestic packages are out. I've got a grip on these. The last, what is it? I've lost count now. Five or 600 things are going out. Um, we have scheduled a day to do more cameo video messages for people. The last time we got a chance to do any, I think, was back in, God, was it August or September? Because then we tried to open the, no, it was maybe September because we tried to open the website twice. But anyway, so so that people get a chance to get a shot at these for Christmas. Sunday, December the 12th at noon Eastern, you can go to, actually, you can go to jimcornette.com and on the homepage, just click on the Cameo button. It'll take you right to the page. Or you can go to cameo.com slash jimcornette if you you please. Uh, Sunday, December 12th at noon Eastern, and we're, we're not putting a time limit on these since this is christmas cameo chaos we're going to leave them up until we sell as many as we can possibly fill that week because i i think everybody knows when you order the cameo we have up to six or seven days to fulfill that and so that's what that's why they come out so quick and that's why we also limit the amount that we put up usually because there's a limit to how many we can do since we put some effort into this. And, and uh, as everybody's seen, the production is there and we don't, we don't just slough off as they say. So Hotchkiss has cleared his schedule uh, for that week and I will be finished filling the orders. So we're going to do, we're going to leave it up until we can basically sell as many as we can shoot uh, that week in between your and mine podcast recordings and still fulfill them by the time limit. That's as fair as we can be. I think this is a mistake. What? Giving people the cameos? Yeah, well, give people the cameos, but recognize what these cameos are. Limit the amount you sell, boost up the price, <sighs> and then everyone's happy. It's Christmas, Ebenezer. Exactly. You it's need to pay for all the gifts for all the, the children at the local orphanage that you go to that you have to give gifts to so you need more money too god i'm telling you it would have been easier to pull a greasy string out of a cat's ass and pull that thing out of your ass you just pulled out there (laughs) um you're so ebenezer it's christmas it's the joy of the holiday season i'm putting cameos on sale to give people a chance to get their their boyfriend or their husband or their father or their son or their significant person in their life a gift for christmas that they they has not been available for months and may not be available again for a while and you're all you're concerned about is jacking the price up i'm looking out for your well-being i'm looking at getting as many of the fans taken care of as possible 
and you're looking at me charging $10,000 from two people instead of $100 from 2,000 people. I didn't say $10,000. I mean, you said $10,000. If you think that's a fair price, I mean, maybe we can investigate that. But I didn't say that. That wasn't my idea. That was your idea. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, yes, I wish you would. If Stacy reached out and said, Brian, you know what? Cameo's a big thing. I want to get Jim a cameo. Are there any actual celebrities out there you would be excited to get a cameo from? Barack Obama. Really? Okay, interesting. Without having to think about it, um, just because then he would recognize that I exist on the planet and that would be cool for me what are you roman reigns recognize me obama no i mean just he's a piece of he was the most important man in the world and he's still up there i'm sure he doesn't have time to fucking research my career or hang out and listen to the podcast but i would like him to know that i'm around and i'm a big fan i'm trying to think of somebody else that i would like a cameo from that is still alive billy Mooney. <sighs> no you wanted to hang oh, out? Well, that's right. You didn't want to hang out with him. Only, you wanted to hang out with Dr. Smith. That's right. Well, yeah. I, I see Dr. Smith is dead. And only if Billy Moomy, if he if he looked the same way he did when he was seven and he was wishing people into the cornfield on the cameo, I'd fucking, yeah, in a heartbeat. But he's he's an older man than I am, for fuck's sake, now. um, Most people would be, you know, most people would be dead. Even in the wrestling business or the, the, you know, the, the movie business or the, well, I get, you know, the, the Eagles, except, well, poor Glenn. Oh boy. I would pay to hear you and Don Henley have the, a conversation. Oh my God. But the, the Stones, they're poor Charlie. Zeppelin, poor Bonham. You know, there's a, there's a hole in. Died yeah. 40 years ago. Well, yeah, but I'm saying there's a hole in, if you were talking about any major entertainment group uh movie star boris karloff now that would be cool hello jim see something like that but he's so it's really you'd rather talk to holograms than anyone i'd I'd rather talk to dead people than anybody (laughs) breathing is what the fucking deal is on that but anyway but yes the christmas cameos hotchkiss we've cleared some time oh i didn't tell you this either i admit i teased it on the last program we did i've hired a couple of extra hands for the beginning of the year we're going to be announcing this later on but uh, the there'll be more opportunities to get the fine cornets collectibles merchandise and we'll be able to keep a uh, store open and things on sale a little bit more often because, and they will announce this as the new year breaks, but I've hired a couple of extra hands. I don't know if I've told you about it, but Hotchkiss's aunt and uncle have been on hard times because of disability and they needed some extra money. I thought, well, they could help out, you know, with the, some of the packages and everything. So I've hired beginning in 2022 and it's a write-off. Uh, Hotchkiss's aunt and uncle. And it's a write-off. Yeah, and it's a write-off. They're employees, so, you know, and and this way it helps them, too, because of the disability. Aunt Fanny and Uncle Felcher. Fanny and Felcher Featherbottom. And they've been on disability for quite some time because I I mentioned I'd hired a couple of extra hands. That's what I'm getting between the two of them. Because, unfortunately, and it's a freak thing. This is why they were made to be together. And they're a great couple and they just love each other to death. But it's a freak thing is that, well, Fanny has no left, has no uh, right arm and Felcher has no left arm. 
And so together between the two of them, I'm getting a couple of extra hands. But uh, Felcher, well, no, I mean, and they're a lovely couple. They're a a really cute couple. But Felcher, he used to work in a fireworks plant. And he was caught in an accidental explosion one day. It blew the entire left side of his body off. That was years ago. He's, He's all right now. And then Fanny, Fanny was uh, injured. Actually, she got gangrene from a very serious frog gigging accident that came up. uh, It was a number of years ago, and it derailed her career. She was a famous, had a famous restaurant, really a highly acclaimed restaurant here in town. But when she got the gangrene from that frog gigging accident and she lost her right arm, she had to give up because she couldn't flip or fry the, the frog legs. But boy, in her day, they called her Frog Gig and Fanny. It was it was Aunt Fanny Featherbottom's famous fried frog legs was the name of the restaurant. It was a big sign, giant sign. But any but that all fell by the wayside. They they were foreclosed on, and the I'll tell you, it was a sad day. The foreclosure of Aunt Fanny Featherbottom's famous fried frog legs. They were fucked. But anyway, so they'll be on the payroll come twenty twenty two. Sounds like a good investment. Well, I'm trying to give people an opportunity for a second chance in life. Speaking of second chances. So apparently Seth Rollins's attacker was not neither contrite <laughs> nor suitably chastened by his trip to the Hoosgow, to the big house, to the to the station down in New York of all places to go to jail. Did you see the video that he released? I, you know, I did. He was walking somewhere on the street. Maybe he was walking straight out of jail, but he, he did not seem contrite yet when he said that basically he was booked to do this by Vince McMahon and Goldberg. Wait, he really said that? I'm telling you, I remember I said, when we talked about it first thing, I said in the old days, it was regular people that hit the ring, regular guys that got caught up. They were already mad at the heel. They got caught up in whatever heat situation they saw and alcohol was involved. As with this guy, I predicted there would be a mental component. Apparently there is a mental component, either that or the component is that there's not enough mental there. He doesn't, he, he was booked by to do that by Vince McMahon and Goldberg, but they didn't tell Seth Rollins, all AKA Colby Lopez. See, this is real because he knows <laughs> he knows Colby Lopez's real name. No, and well, go ahead. Well, what? no, I was going to say for the record. I mean, it sounds like this person may have some issues, but considering Vince McMahon's current state, is it outrageous to think that maybe Vince McMahon got in his limousine? <laughs> And found some guy in Brooklyn and started fucking with him. You mean, well, no, I thought you were going to say maybe he actually actually ass-dialed somebody and he thought it was one of the boys and he booked him to be there and do an angle with Seth. He didn't know the difference. But, uh, yeah, and by the way, you Goldberg. <sighs> the guy has issues. I think he's got subscriptions. But no, this was, see, this is a personal issue also between the guy and and Colby Lopez because, Brian, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but Seth Rollins, a.k.a. Colby Lopez, 
has stolen money from this guy on the internet. Not a, he has asked this guy if he could borrow money. And this guy, apparently he's talking to somebody on the internet that claims he's Seth Rollins. Who we assume would make, I don't know, millions a year. Millions and <laughs> millions. But but he's, he's he's like well he's like all the preachers as Carlin said you know and God he's you know he's all powerful all knowing all seeing but he's bad with money that's why they've always got to raise money for you the, apparently Seth Rollins makes millions and millions but he needed to borrow a couple grand from this this fucking putz in Brooklyn or wherever and so the guy sends him the money. And then there's another twist to the story in that some way, apparently, Seth Rollins, unquote, on the internet, paid the guy back with a, a check. Wait, what? Paid the guy back with a check or in some fashion that was no good. And then the guy's girlfriend, I guess, wrote a check and got popped for writing a bad check on the payback money from the fake Seth Rollins that wasn't any good. This just gets better and better. And this, then the guy in his video um, not only said Vince and Goldberg had booked him to be there and do it, they didn't tell fucking Colby Lopez because it's personal, but the guy also did it for Roman Reigns, Rikishi, The Rock, and everybody else in the family because he, he either he's a member of the bloodline or he's supporting the bloodline. <laughs> And was he, he wasn't Samoan, was he? No, he looks like a black guy from Brooklyn, a little dumpy, fat black guy from Brooklyn. But maybe he's the end of the bloodline. Yeah. The bloodline stops here. But it was so the guy, he's nuts. He's nuts. He's not only nuts, but easily, you know, led easily persuaded. I mean, he felt. What do the kids call it when you you fake being somebody? You catfish somebody. Well, he he got hooked by a catfish. He's easily he's gullible. He's got something going on mentally, and then he decides to just you know. I guess maybe he heard. Did he hear voices in his head or did somebody else on the internet say they were Vince McMahon and Goldberg? Maybe, maybe somebody in this guy's neighborhood has, has caught on. Cause I could see in the old days, if there had been an internet, I could see the boys doing this to some fu- fucking guy. Everybody's figured out in his neighborhood that he's an idiot and that he's nuts and they've just been telling him shit and he's been buying it. I don't know. But yeah, so that's why that that happened. And sad to say, he's not the only fucking mental case out there in the world. And they had one at the, how many years ago was it at the Hall of Fame when they jumped and the guy jumped and hit Bret Hart? Oh, geez, four or five years? years? I was thinking a little bit more than that, maybe. Three, four, whatever it was. Um, So they had that one. You had the guy that, they arrested for stalking outside the performance center in Florida and he got shot by the police, right? There was some mix up dust up there. You had the, the guy that, uh, and this is off premises, but you had the guy that 
was stalking Sonia Deville and tried to break into her apartment and either marry or kill her, depending on how that turned out. He did break in, didn't he? Yeah, that's why. Well, I'm saying he, you know, he he was in love with her, but he also took implements of serial killers. So one way or another, he was going to do something. And, you know, it's not, they're not making fans mad who've had a little bit too much to drink and got caught up in the angle you know anymore because you could at least deal with that because you could kind of you could see if you were doing something hot and if people were reacting and you could sometimes sense well something may be coming and where you were always looking out but now they don't get any type of physical you know reaction from people except the people that are absolutely batshit fucking nuts so they need to do something with their security uh past expecting that everybody's gonna you know be fighting over the t-shirt or whatever they throw out in the crowd they they need to and you know i'm i i hesitate to say it but maybe they need to start having cops walk the talent back and forth in the arena from the ring to the locker room and back like they used to maybe that would look more like a sporting event anyway that would be refreshing to see that. When's the last time you saw that on a regular basis? The late 90s? Yeah, well, in wrestling, it's been probably before then, but you'd still see it in boxing and stuff. Well, that's what I mean. And well, and, and in house shows, I mean, we still had cops walking us to the ring in house shows in the late 90s for the WWF, um, in the big arenas or whatever. So, you know, maybe that uh, holy mackerel, that might that might serve a double purpose. It might help, you know, protect the talent. And also it might look more like a sporting event. I love it. When you see all the, the old people tweet the eighties clips of well anywhere, but especially Crockett promotions or whatever. And you see the platoon of police escorting us all to the ring. And now it's just this big wide open area where everybody had a shot at you if they want to. You know, the 86 Mets documentary, which you really need to watch. Yeah, I, I, I'm sorry. Wait a minute. Who had the time on 45 minutes into the show or less? He'd mention this. Okay. Well, you really need to watch it. You'll understand me so much more once you watch this wonderful four-part documentary. But when the Mets... Who said I want to understand you at all? Well, listen to this. When the Mets clinched the division in September of 86... As soon as the ball left Wally Backman, the second baseman's hand, the fans started swarming the field. So by the time Keith Hernandez caught it, thousands of people were on the field and they destroyed the field. They ripped up the grass. They tore home plate out of the ground. They destroyed the, the field. When the Mets won the World Series before the third out, hundreds of policemen on horses came, <laughs> down, came out from either side to prevent any fans. And a few got by and then they got tackled and thrown into jail but to prevent that scene they reacted immediately and to make sure it never happened again and we've never seen that happen again in new york sports and it used to happen for the yankees it happened for the mets where the fans run on the field so you got to change something that, that would have been great if one of those cops on horseback had one had fan had broken through and started running and the cop ran him down it looked like fucking dennis weaver and mcleod on the fucking horse well, how about this in terms of how times have changed one of the greatest games ever, the most important games ever, Game 6 of the 1986 World Series. The beginning of the game, a guy parachutes into the stadium. 
<laughs> Unbeknownst to anyone, no one even knows what plane he jumped out of. There are a whole bunch of stories. They tried to figure it out. Where did this guy come from? He's done interviews and stuff. I don't even know if he's still alive, but he's done interviews where he won't reveal who the pilot was or where he came out of. <laughs> All of a sudden, in the middle of the game, he lands with a sign that says, Go Mets, and they arrest him. And as they say in the documentary, and I remember it when it happened, I was a kid, that couldn't happen today. <laughs> There's no way in the world that could happen today. And it was an amazing moment, but times change and you have to How react to How hard would it times. be to figure out which plane somebody jumped out of? How many planes were going over the stadium at that time? Shea Stadium was in a direct flight path of LaGuardia Airport. <laughs> LaGuardia was right there. I mean, right next to Shea, pretty much. So one of the things about Met games, and they changed it somewhat with City Field, was planes always flew overhead in the middle of the game, nonstop. So it wasn't outrageous to hear a plane and just not look up. You know, you just wouldn't even think about it. And then suddenly the guy shows up. And then suddenly, all of a sudden, in the middle of the game, he just lands on the field. It's one of the great moments. Again, you really need to watch this documentary. And do you know who was at the game that time? In 1986, game six? Jim Hurd. No, he wasn't. Because that's where he got that expression. When when Flair wanted to work with Bobby Eaton and gave him a title match on TV, and Hurd <laughs> came in and said, where did Bobby Eaton come from? How did he get a title match and drop him in out of a helicopter? That's where he saw it. Well, I guess that changes the story. It was a helicopter, ladies and gentlemen. Anyway, so basically this guy's a mental case, but he did it for Vince. He did it for Goldberg. He did it for the bloodline. He did it for the the honor of his wife that bounced a check because he got stuck catfished on the internet by Colby Lopez. I wonder... If, you know, I'd like to get inside this guy's head and see his life. I would like to see how he sees his life inside his head. Really? I bet it's like a beautiful oil painting of him <laughs> hanging out in the WWE locker room with The Rock and The Bloodline and Rikishi and all the other people. And, I, and he's probably sitting on Colby Lopez putting propping his feet up on him that's in this guy's head that's probably what his life looks like don't you think maybe spending some of that colby lopez money some of that sweet sweet colby lopez money on a painting from paint your life folks if you want to create your own reality if you're not going to let pesky little thing like facts get in the way then you can have an incredible world-class oil painting courtesy of the world-class artists at paint your life folks no matter how bizarre you'd like your life to be the team of artists at paint your life can take any photograph or combination of photographs and make them a reality combine them into one fantastic oil painting you can bring together generations in your family you can bring together loved ones from across the world that have not been in the same place at the same time. Or you can remember cherished pets or favorite places or vacation spots, whatever. You can hang it up on your wall. You can think about these things, even if they don't exist in reality. It can be real or it can be an alternate reality with Paint Your Life. And if you go to paintyourlife.com, if you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded, guaranteed. 
And right now, as a limited time offer, you can get 20% off your painting and free shipping by texting the word DRIVE, D-R-I-V-E, to 64000. That's DRIVE to 64000. Six four with three zeros behind it. And uh, Brian, once again, you can have anything at the touch of your hand. You can look at it on the wall. You can touch it. You can pet it. You can hug it and squeeze it and call it George, an original oil painting by a world-class artist done from any photo at an affordable price. What an incredible holiday gift. Well, Jim, back to the story that was painted. See what I did there? Last week in Brooklyn, Seth Rollins, of course, he was the one attacked. He was the one in the moment who had to deal with a sneak attack from behind, had to put him in a front face lock and... Then, of course, security jumped in, and he yelled at the guy a bunch. He was interviewed this week, I believe, either by TMZ or it was on TMZ. I didn't actually see the interview clip. I just read about it. Did you see this? Do you know what I'm talking about? I uh, I heard that, he, well, it was on TMZ because they did what they usually do. They caught him with a camera someplace and asked him a question. It's just, it's, it's a, I can't believe that show has a budget. Because all they do is just send people out with their phones to ask people questions at airports. But, um, but yes, I did. And here, I, you know, I defended Seth on the, the char. Everybody was making mockery of, well, the guy took him down and Chavo Guerrero jumped in and said, remember when the, the wrestlers were tougher than the fans? He didn't see the guy coming. He wasn't looking for the guy. He was back in the protected area, supposedly, and was about to turn around and fucking do his glory shot after his heel angle, and suddenly, boom, here this guy. So I defended him for that because you couldn't, you know, you couldn't have seen something like that coming. And and then when all the referees piled on, as we mentioned also, they're both telling him get away because of legal ramifications. And then it becomes a dog pile and you can't do anything, but he didn't do himself any favors by the way that he described the attack. Do you have the quote there or should we just uh, paraphrase? I have the article from TMZ here. I just pulled it up. WWE Seth Rollins fan attack was terrifying. Keep him from WWE. I guess referring to the crazy fan. <laughs> WWE superstar Seth Rollins is opening up about the out-of-control fan who speared him during a taping of Raw, saying he was shocked and terrified and believes the attacker should be banned, at least for now. What? Wait a minute, for now? <laughs> is this like a timeout? I don't or understand is, that. He, is he being sent to detention for two weeks, or what is a ban him for now? The 35-year-old wrestler just touched down in Los Angeles less than 24 hours after he was on the receiving end of the attempted assault, and he admitted he was shook by the whole thing. Quote, It's terrifying, brother, Rollins said, providing a play-by-play -play of the incident. It happened very quickly. I was mostly just reaching and hoping that our security would come and do their job. Good, good point, by the way. Yeah! <laughs> Which they did very quickly. Bad point, what? by the way. <laughs> what? It was referees for the first 45 seconds and then a guy with a headset. Go ahead. And then was just trying to detach and move on. Hope that everybody is okay. <laughs> Hope that everybody's okay. The bomb didn't go off. 
Everybody's obviously okay, including the fucking guy who apparently, as we mentioned, is lacking remorse in the incident. After the attack, there was confusion about whether the whole melee was part of the show, something Rollins shot down, saying, quote, Once the tackle happened, I knew what was going on. The guy was barreling around the corner. Luckily, Seth says he was not injured during the attack. Quote, no, no serious injuries. Nothing like that. I was safe. We were safe. Everything was okay. <laughs> Nothing to see here, folks. Everything Move is along. fine. <laughs> As we previously reported. Well, wait a minute. The, yeah, a, a, a paragraph ago, it was terrifying. Now it's everybody's safe. Nothing to see here. Move along. As we previously reported, we being TMZ, the 24-year-old fan has been hit with two charges in New York City, but Rollins was tight-lipped on whether he wants the guy to be punished criminally. However, Seth is sure he doesn't want to see the fan sitting ringside at a WWE event anytime soon. And the final quote here, I think, as a precedent, he probably should not be allowed at the event. <laughs> I don't know why that cracks me <laughs> I think we need I, to make a point and just not allow him to sit ringside anymore. <laughs> I think, you know, yeah. Hey, here's the thing. That cannibalism shit that Dahmer was, fella was doing, we shouldn't let him in any of the better restaurants anymore. <laughs> and so here's the, the, obviously the headline, the, the, the word in big print was terrifying because that's what, you know, made it a news thing. That didn't do Seth any favors because now, in addition to getting taken down in public, he said it was terrifying. I think one of the fans on, I think it was on Twitter or somebody said it best, even if he was scared as, as a big pro wrestler and, or as a man, do you want to admit that to the world? Or couldn't he have said something like, Hey, there's no excuse for this kind of stuff. And he better be thankful to his lucky stars that I never saw him coming, but as soon as I got my hands on him, I would have ripped him limb from limb, except the security had taken over, and I didn't want to go to court for this fucking clown. And that's what's going to happen to anybody that does this again. I'm just happy everyone is safe. We're all safe. Everyone's okay. I think don't let him sit ringside for now, and we'll see what happens. <laughs> But again, now you've, now you've planted in somebody else's mind. Oh, he was terrified. Well, I could terrify somebody like that. And, and again, just, I mean, it, it always used to be whenever anybody would come out on the wrong end of something with a fan for any reason that the boys would blister them in the locker room. Of course, that time that I've mentioned in Biloxi when that big 350 pound farm boy got on Bobby. Bobby got him in a front face lock and a guy just stood up under Bobby and Bobby's feet were in the air and he wiped out a few sections of ringside with Bobby. Bobby wouldn't let go and finally the cops got there and everybody got wrestled apart and Dennis unmercifully <laughs> blistered Bobby in the car after that. Cause, you know, it's funny after you, you know, realize that everybody's still alive and nobody got knifed. And same thing with me when they ribbed me with the Assault and battery on a police officer after everybody figured out, oh, it's okay. Um, there's been, I've mentioned some really terrifying times, many of them in Tulsa, but in various points in my career at the time, I wasn't laughing. 
and you always do, the adrenaline kicks in. And even if they're pulling you apart or you're getting out, you're just, I want that fucking guy. I want the guy that started the whole thing or whatever. Seth cut the promo on him. But I don't know that afterwards, since you're you're going to be getting enough ribbon from the boys and now from some of the fans that you should come out and say, oh, it was terrifying. It would have been terrifying if you were in the middle of the crowd with police around you with nightsticks fighting for your life and a bunch of people were trying to attack and shit was flying everywhere. And, oh, shit, that's terrifying. But this was a goddamn skirmish that he probably should have cut a little heel promo on just to fucking deflect and get out of it. I don't, but terrifying gave them a nice word for a headline. So they went with that. So now the wrestlers are terrified of the, the five foot four, 180 pound fans that jump at them from behind a railing because nobody's watching. Oh, and somebody did actually tweet me and said that, uh, they were there at the, in the building at the taping. And that's exactly what the guy did. He hopped over at the far end where that open area met the bleacher seats in the dark where they've got equipment and nobody's supposed to be and nobody's looking. And then he ran around into the light and that's, you know, that's, that's what happened. So they need to put somebody on the corners. Notice what Seth Rollins didn't say. What did he not say? Anything about paying this crazy fan back the money he owes him. <laughs> What kind of guy is he? Pay him back his money. Well, you know, he he could have said, hey, I already, I sent him a check. I don't know what went wrong. He should have said, you know, Vince and Goldberg are doing this shit to me all the time. That's what this is. <laughs> hey, maybe this is, as somebody, somebody still thinks it's a work out there. Maybe this is a roundabout way to get him into a program between Rollins and Goldberg. Yeah, it'll be great. Come to find out, ah. Goldberg was the one that was impersonating Rollins all along. Ah, imposter. Ah. An and egg. We'll get an egg. Rollins went into Vince's office and said, Vince, Goldberg's impersonating me again. And Vince said, excellent question, Shelton. WrestleMania, main event. Main event. Talk to Triple Egg. He'll book it. Triple Egg. Tri triple Egg. Triple Egg. The Queen of Soul. Anyway, should we move on to yes. the, the, yes, we should, <laughs> to anything, <clears throat> to anything involving somebody that's not triple ed. Um, well, I said they, at the top of the program, they picked this week to soar with the Eagles instead of scratching with the chickens. The, the night before Thanksgiving was a magic night for AEW. This, almost the entire program was not only inoffensive, but actually pretty good. Notice who wasn't on it. Well, I was, and we, we are entering a golden period, ladies and gentlemen, where we don't have to look at Twinkle Toes McFinger Bang until at least from what I'm hearing the end of February. Um, We got no Moxley on the show. He's getting his treatment or whatever, but a, a, a byproduct of it is we get somebody else gets a chance. The Hardly Boys. That was who I was speaking of specifically from this episode. Yes. Their involvement is hopefully going to be minimized going forward since we have actual talent now. And this, as a, as a television wrestling program, what AEW did on the Wednesday night before Thanksgiving 
is better than anything that we've seen from the WWE in ages. And it's not because, you know, they're, they're more professional than the WWE. They've got the, the, the big budget that the WWE, they've got the great production crew, blah, blah, blah. They've got the buildings. They've got the whole nine yards. They just, what they put out in front of you as content in the WWE is now either silly or mostly just blah. It's just boring. It, it, even the stuff that there, there's nothing unprofessional going on, there's nothing exciting going on either. But when AEW puts the people that they've got that can perform in one fashion or another out there and lets them do it and they shoot it like a wrestling show, it almost looks like a wrestling show. Imagine that. Um, and I guess this is going to be JR's last show for a month. He's going to have to do 20-something radiation treatments for his skin cancer over the course of the next month, which means pretty much every day almost. So he's going to have to take some time off. And I think I saw something where Tony Khan t tweeted that he'd be back or he hoped he'd be back uh, on their New Year's Eve week show from Florida. So <clears throat> good luck, JR, with the treatments. And I hope that goes well. And we'll see. Just taking someone out of that booth couldn't hurt since there's more announcers than in some cases, some wrestling companies have wrestlers on the roster. They've got more announcers. So just taking somebody out for a while might help a little bit. I agree. And it should be Shivani. And let's all wish JR get well soon. And I'm sure he'll be back hopefully very soon on AEW TV. And somebody said, well, why does Cornette still not like excrement since he's the only one that really is excited to call what he's watching? And if he'd take the fucking mask off and become a real human being and not look like an embarrassing outlaw prick, then it would be a whole lot easier to take. But since that's never going to happen because he still has to remind everybody that he once masqueraded as a professional wrestler, it won't happen. They should go the other way and have all the other announcers start wearing masks. <laughs> Completely takes any of the importance away from it. Hey, in the first year of this program, I'm surprised that JR didn't fucking just don a mask. <laughs> on some of the... <clears throat> so at least his face wouldn't be on the thing. But anyway, Wednesday night, the night before Thanksgiving, they're in Chicago, Illinois. Where do you got to start? Where do you got to start, Brian? I, I, I'm not going to sing it. Like Mussolini and extra cheese. Pickles, onions, if you please. Put it on the bun, <laughs> the mayo there. I'll eat it in my underwear. Oh, come on, enough. I'm the cult of meat with extra cheese. The cult of meat with extra cheese. The cult of meat with extra cheese. Now with tomato. <laughs> oh, I didn't expect that. <laughs> How? Um, there comes punk and I'm saying, okay, they're leading with punk and QT Marshall. Punk's a safe shot in Chicago every time, but suddenly the music of MJF, not QT Marshall 
And I'm saying, well, it's Christmas. Come early. And by the time he gets to the ring, he doesn't even, the people are ready to hear this. They, they've wanted to hear this just like everybody else has, because punks noted for his promos, MJF's noted for his promos. And also they're two of the most interesting personalities in the company. And MJF, he did before he barely even had to speak. They had the asshole chance, the CM Punk chance, the shut the fuck up chance. And then they started. And the way they did this, if you notice when they started out, they were all the way across the ring from each other in opposite corners. And Punk is just humoring this little prick. Like, what the fuck is this guy come out here to say? And let him say it. And over the, I don't want to jump ahead, but over the course of the thing, as the comments got more heated and there got to be more back and forth, that's when they got up closer together to each other. So there, they didn't start up. They knew they were going a while. So they didn't start face to face because then where are you going to go? Remember, I mentioned that before, especially with MJF and the way he's so sharp with some of this stuff. Before he gets to his go home line, he's already emasculated the baby face. If he's right there up in front of him where he could reach him this time, they started and they gradually, came together but punk let mjf build it and he just sat back and had the facials and the reactions to it but you know mjf brought the you know the only straight edge guy i've ever seen looks like a meth addict and i'm gonna verbally finish you quicker than your ufc career that was the one that was the one where as soon as you heard that it took it to another level because you didn't know if they were ever going to bring that up in aew you figured it would be a sore spot and who's going to bring it up? The one guy who wants to really annoy CM Punk. It was great. And then just just for Punk going to get a microphone and somebody handed him a microphone, the people popped on that because they were, oh, okay, here we go. You know, MJF, my jealous fan, the poster of me on your wall, but then they he hit him with a less famous Miz. Oh, my, what a burn, as the kids <laughs> say. And great reactions. Yes. From both guys throughout the whole thing. Very different reactions, but the camera was on their faces, and you got to see the reactions, and it was perfect. And this, it was like, obviously, both these guys, you couldn't, it wasn't obvious that you couldn't see a mile away that somebody had written this down, or even that they had written it down and practiced it. It seemed off the cuff, spontaneous, two guys trying to blister each other. Uh, as best they could and keep up their respective reputations with that. Um, you know, MJF, your breath smells like shit because you've been kissing so much ass. It's PG punk. And then he starts comparing him to John Cena. But I, I did think that it was, I don't ironic, funny, preposterous, whatever, that in front of this crowd, being compared to the biggest star that the wrestling business has made in the last 15 years is bad. It's the representation. But it's, it's the, yeah. It's and, what he and, represents. And it's, it's just where everybody was in the scheme of things. Uh, but anyway, as they wound up and got worked up and got closer to each other, and MJF says, you're nothing more than second best. That's all you've ever been. And, uh, you know, I'm better than you and you know it. And then Punk comes back. Instead of being mad and yelling at him and pissed off, he said, you know, you're right. You're right. Uh, at first, I didn't know if they'd still give a shit. I didn't know if I still had it. 
I might have been a little bit, I'm not scared anymore, and I'm not unsure anymore, whatever, and I'm not scared of you. And I'll I'll let you make the New York Times again, this time in the obituaries. And then he told him off and escalated it again. <laughs> Replaced as one of the four pillars by Britt Baker. And then the only way that you'll ever be number one is if Tony has a daughter and you marry her. That's and I even saw somebody complaining that they spent too much time talking about the other company. I saw a lot of that. And I think in a lot of cases in wrestling, it's a real thing, like an impact. Don't talk about WWE. It makes you look small. But that wasn't what this was. No. These guys didn't ignore the obvious, the things that everyone in that audience knew about. And by bringing all that stuff up, it made it all seem more real. Yeah. You believed what they were saying. These are things you may not necessarily think you would ever hear on a wrestling show which is why you got some of those reactions. I think anyone who had a problem with them talking about, I mean, they didn't just go out there and yell WWF, WWF, <laughs> WWE, excuse me. But they referenced things that everyone knows about. It made perfect sense. Yes. And they referenced a place that he's been, and they referenced a fucking, it, all those fans know what's going on, and they know the relationships and they know the track records and it, it was good stuff. And like you said, it made it seem real. And then after the, if you marry Tony's daughter, that's well here now, you know, uh, the laundry starts coming off and punk offered to punch him, JF and his needle dick. And so they start doing the, here comes the scarf and here comes the jacket and here comes the blah, blah, blah. And then MJF rolls out and takes off like a heel. Fuck. We ain't going to get to see it now, but we want to see it. That was, I mean, it was, that was, it's pro wrestling without any physicality whatsoever. The first step of pro wrestling is get people interested in the personalities. The second step in pro wrestling is get the personalities in conflict with each other where the people want to see him fight before they actually fight. And then the third step in pro wrestling is let them have the fight and sell tickets to it <clears throat> or pay-per-views or draw ratings or whatever the scale is these days. And that's what they're fucking doing. And I've, I was gobsmacked that again, you don't see anything that, real or legitimate or or just well done on anything the wwe does because even if they had anybody that could talk like this they don't let them and those fucking pea-brained little fucking minutia dick fucking comedy writers hand them shit and say no you'll say this word for word and it sounds like it so this is where AEW can easily blow the WWE television programs out of the water is with real interesting promos because it's the only place that guys are allowed to do them. And, and honestly, how many places have guys that can talk like MJF and Punk? So there you have that. I can't rave enough about this segment. I watched it more than once. I tweeted it out. I never tweet out AEW. <laughs> I tweeted this out because you know what? Because you're on the payroll. Because I'm on the payroll. 
Uh, Tony, I need a raise. But, you know, I tweeted it out because it represents what I want out of wrestling in 2021. We can't go backwards. I don't ever want to go backwards. Everyone's like, you know, go back to 1985. I don't want to go to 1985. I want to live now. But there are things you can apply that worked in 1985 that you shouldn't just reject because they're from 1985. What I like about this is it's diametrically opposed to a Young Buck segment where I think even if you like them, you have to admit there's goofiness, there's silliness beyond a natural goofiness and silliness. You know, there are wrestlers, Jim Duggan was naturally goofy on promos in Mid-South. I'm not talking yeah. about WWF yeah. Jim Duggan. But the Young Buck stuff, and I'm using them to encapsulate a lot of the bad shit, the Orange Cassidy stuff, the Matt Hardy stuff, a lot of this crap that I think doesn't belong on a national broadcast in 2021, it makes me embarrassed to be a wrestling fan, and it makes me not like what I'm watching. But when I see stuff like this, when I see stuff like Danielson right now, stuff that treats it like it's real, stuff that doesn't insult your intelligence, stuff that's logical, that makes sense, that doesn't seem ridiculous, this is my argument for what wrestling should be right now. This stuff right here, that's captivating, that goes 20 minutes, and you can't fucking turn away from it. I couldn't leave the room. I was getting called downstairs and said, I'll be down in a few minutes. I usually pause the shit and go downstairs. Well, and part of that was because Suzanne forgot to leave you the keys to the handcuffs. Well, <laughs> maybe so. But this was a phenomenal segment. I didn't want it to end. It went a couple of different directions that I didn't expect. And this is two weeks in a row now where I can't wait to see what's going to happen next with these two. Nothing physical. Right now, it's just mocking each other and getting under each other's skin. Draw this out. We said last time, don't rush it. You got something special here. You got the biggest star in that company. I would argue the biggest star in the entire wrestling business right now versus the next biggest star in AEW, quite frankly. This is a special moment and a special feud. And so far, two weeks in, it's been great. And to me, it perfectly shows what I think wrestling in 2021, in terms of the angles and interviews and segments outside of the matches, this is what I think it should be. Everything can't be this, but everything can have the tone of this. Well, yeah, and you mentioned it it's real, so it would work in any time period. In the 80s, they would have been yelling at each other about, well, I beat so-and-so, and I beat so-and-so, and I beat, well, you cheated to beat me. And they would have been talking about the finish of something or their record like that was completely legitimate. The people would have been with it because they thought it was. Now, they were still making comments that the people could believe were legitimate they're just personal. They're not coming out and saying the wrestling business is 100% real. And they're not coming out and saying that the wrestling business is 100% work or anything in between. They are making it personal. And each one of them is, well, not each one of them, Punk and jealous of MJF, but MJF, the heel, is jealous of Punk and trying to get over him. So it's still, it's instead of, in the storyline context, instead of fighting over a championship or being screwed in a finish or whatever and treating the business that way, they treat the business still seriously as a competition amongst who's going to be the biggest star and who can get over, and they don't 
mention anything that would buzz kill you and take you out of the moment and remind you that wrestling is a work. So it's just a little different way of approaching two guys having a problem with each other in, in, and they're doing it in a worked environment where you can still believe there's some animosity. And, and cause one thing that fans know is that there actually is legitimate animosity in a lot of cases amongst guys who want to occupy the same spot, whether the, endeavor that they're participating in is work or not so yeah this is this could be modern wrestling we've heard from so many people from interviews from different things from wrestlers who work there that tony loves mid-south wrestling early on remember we heard that this is gonna be like a modern version of mid-south wrestling yes which was why i was so particularly offended after hearing that when i saw the the legless boy and whatever this and danielson the last few weeks this is Mid-South Wrestling in 2021. Yes. Yep. So and, I think, and I think it's important to note that because there's still a lot of other really bad shit. There's a lot of other shit that's improving. There's a lot of other people who may be right now be doing something to hold them over until the next thing. But there's still bad shit. But the good shit in AEW right now is the best shit in years. And this punk MJF feud, this is very promising. I mean, two weeks in, <laughs> everyone's been buzzing about this segment. A 20-minute talking segment. People are sick of talking segments. It didn't feel like the normal talking segment. No, as a matter of fact, and we're not over with Punk's business yet, but when I speed searched through the commercial, which that's really the only time I used the speed search this week, when I went through the commercial and came back, that's when I realized, my God, we're almost half an hour into this show, and it's flown by. And then they had the and, punk. Uh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and this goes into the uh, next thing, but what I was going to say is it's really an interesting dynamic right now because AEW, Tony Khan's from Illinois, and they go to Chicago a lot. And it creates a really cool dynamic you don't get any more in wrestling because everything's a national touring company. You get a home field advantage for punk. You got a local audience cheering a local guy multiple times a year on national TV. We haven't had that in a while. You know, I mean, I know it sounds like a silly thing, but we never get that. We never get yeah. a hometown flavor on a national wrestling show, and we're getting it all the time now with Punk in Chicago. It's kind of cool. And if the WWE guys do happen to visit their hometown, if anybody knows that they're from that town, they generally <laughs> they generally get bent over and pissed on and and yeah. mud, mud slung in their yeah. face kiss my egg yeah. Yeah. egg gobbledygook anyway so then punk had his match and now like i said we we're 20 minutes in we went to the break we come back there's punk in the ring and he's against qt marshall with solo and comorato and they had exactly the match they should have. Maybe a little bit long, but they had to go through a break. <clears throat> I understand formatting, but Punk gets pops on scoop slams now. Just because it it because he's smart enough to have built it up to be a thing. And the Stooges interfered and uh, it got kicked out of ringside. And at one point, right before they went to the break, uh, Punk gave QT a beautiful shoot off so he could take his upside down bump into the turnbuckle. And QT does that well, better than he does it better than Michaels because it doesn't look like a guy doing a smooth, controlled flip up and then back to his feet. 
it looks like Ray Stevens when he got flung into the fucking turnbuckle and went upside down. So QT does that well, but did you notice Punk actually grabbed his arm, pulled him, put some oomph behind it, shoved him on the way by, and fucking went down with his momentum to get the guy to go upside down? Just a little fucking thing. Yeah. Anyway, so then on the other side of the break, QT got some heat. And then Punk finally hit him with a kick, knocked him goofy, made a comeback, hit the elbow drop off the top, called for the go to sleep, hit the go to sleep, and covered him one, two, three. Serious match. Good win for Punk. Exactly what the finish should have been. No ifs, ands, or buts. There was no jump start. There was no afterbirth. (laughs) This was what was supposed to happen. And it was perfect. And now we're 35 minutes into the show, plus, and I still haven't fast-forwarded anything. And I, again, you know, it. every match does not have to be the main event at Starcade. And apparently, again, the only one maybe who realizes this is CM Punk. He went out and he got a win in his hometown and on national television after doing a brilliant promo and... Look like a wrestling show. I don't know what else you're going to ask. You know, you kind of said my only negative was maybe a little too long. I'm not a QT Marshall fan, so I think the less time you see him on TV, the better. And I think Punk just, he hasn't had any quick, easy wins. And I guess that's part of the story. It is part of the story. I shouldn't say I guess it's part of the story, but I don't know. Maybe just a tad too long. But but he's getting he's getting his his wind back. He's getting his he's impre- improving his cardio all the time, and pretty soon now he's going to be start kicking these guys' asses in in record time. But I mean, we can't just expect him to go out there and just windmill people and beat them in thirty seconds, Brian. That that would just that that would be nuts. It would indeed be nuts. It would be crazy. But you know, I can't even hear the word nuts anymore, folks. Without thinking of our friends at Nuts.com, the best-kept secret of savvy snackers across America. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, wait a minute. Hold on here. (laughs) Woo-hoo. My lips have been lubricated. Folks, (laughs) Nuts.com isn't just for nut lovers. It's a one-stop pantry shop. They've got all the snacks and pantry items available, including candies, dried fruits, baking mixes, pasta, plus the nuts, the nuts, healthy nuts, delicious nuts, nutritious nuts, all kinds of honey sesame sticks, white chocolate toffee cashews, dried mangoes, raw, organic, roasted, salted, and candied, even chocolate-dipped nuts. Snacking heaven here. It's it's the, the Valhalla of snackers. You can get anything here, folks. 4,000 products to choose from. Delivery is fast. Most orders ship the same day. They come fresher than if you got them at the supermarket. And because it's the holidays, of course, you got to have the nuts laying around. Everybody wants to grab your nuts, snack on your nuts, to possibly take your nuts home in their pocket and eat them at home. You know, I had people one time, Brian stole my nuts, had plastic bags in their suit pockets just to be able to dump my hors d'oeuvres into. But anyway, what? if you, that's right, plastic bags in a pocket, it, it comes in handy for soup. Newnuts.com customers get 10% off your first order when you text EXPERIENCE 
the word experience. Can you spell it? I will. E-X-P-E-R-I-E-N-C-E to 64,000. That is 6-4 with three zeros behind it. 64,000. Text the word experience and newnuts.com customers will get 10% off their very first order. Terms apply. Available at nuts.com slash terms. But I'll tell you what. These things are good, and the white chocolate toffee cashews, as we know, are superior, but you like the chocolate gummy bears. They're stuff for kids. They're stuff for old people. If you're so old, you don't even have any teeth left. You don't have to eat the nuts. Eat the gummy bears. That way you can gum them. The fresh rainbow sprinkles for ice cream. You never think about the idea that sprinkles are once fresh when you buy them in a store, but these are amazing. Yes. And the biggest problem I have with nuts.com is that people, listeners of the show, keep tweeting out pictures of their nuts.com arriving, and then I see that, I go, man, I'm hungry, and I order more every time. We just got a box. Just uh, Harley alerted us the other day. She started barking like crazy. She saw the nuts.com box, the packaging. It comes with the, the nuts.com logo, and she went, even Harley knows that when nuts.com arrives, shit's on. All right, well, (laughs) the shit was on, of course, talking about AEW Dynamite this past Wednesday night. Well, and as a matter of fact, we go right from the nuts.com spot to catering at AEW, where there was Eddie Kingston sitting there eating a piece of cake. Or he was trying to eat a piece of cake when suddenly, here comes Daniel Garcia and 2.0. They are everywhere, and they interrupt everybody. And they sit down at Eddie Kingston's table and start harassing him and telling him what's wrong with him. And they say, you know, Eddie, you're just not hungry anymore. And he says, I want this cake. (laughs) And I I don't know why that suddenly Daniel Garcia and 2.0 are joined at the hip or why they just roam the premises at the AEW tapings, interrupting people's backstage (laughs) pre-tape interviews. I don't know, but but this was kind of entertaining. And uh, then they threw hot coffee in his face, and then a bunch of people ran in and and kept pulled. Well, didn't pull them apart because Kingston was trying to kick their ass, and they left, and they were trying to hold Kingston back. At least that was a legitimate legitimate reaction to something that might happen in the middle of fucking catering. How would they have gotten by with having a physical assault in the middle of catering and, and oh, nobody's here to help. So they did that. That looked good. Jim Ross remarked, where's Tony Gurria when you need him? And anybody who worked for the WWE between 25 and 35 years ago died laughing. Because for a variety of reasons, number one, Tony was sometimes called on to be in pull-aparts, but number two, most of the time you could find Tony in catering. What what were your thoughts on, did did Eddie ever get to eat that piece of cake? I don't know. I mean, at first I thought it was a little too cute. Last week he said he was going to catering. This week he's in catering for the promo. <laughs> but I get well, such he, a kick. He eats a lot. I get such a kick at a 2.0 with Daniel Garcia. I mean, he's just like a serious young wrestler. They're just this weird Canadian nasty boy. <laughs> I was about to say the illegitimate <laughs> sons of knobs and... Sag. I find uh, them really entertaining. And I think if you're going to use guys in this kind of role, I'd rather it be them than the Matt Hardy group. 
There you go. And we said it seems like Tony kind of shuffles one undercard heel group on for a few weeks and they're on nonstop. And then he shuffles another one off. Let's hope them being on the show all of a sudden, again, nonstop, means that maybe the Hardy family will be shuffled off for a little while. At least. I don't know. It doesn't look like we're we're shuffling the the best friends anywhere. And those I'd rather even look at the Hardys than the best friends. Just I think if we just keep them all in one segment. That's the wonderful bathroom break segment. Well, anyway, speaking of being full of piss and vinegar, here comes the gun club. Colton and Billy Gunn. Now, what's the other son's name? Oh, Austin. I forgot. Austin, that's right. That's what Austin. It was. Yeah. Okay, Austin is not competing in this. He's at ringside and they they face the team of Bear Country. From where were they in from New York? Do they even have bears in New York? They were announced from New York State. Yeah, in New York State we do, not in New York City, obviously. Well, no, in New York City you got other kinds of animals. As and some rats big as bears. But anyway, <laughs> I got to I got to admit I didn't fast forward this program, but I zoned out on the match because what the fuck? It's bear country. Uh this was obviously they have a plan to do something with Billy and his son. Zuh, depending on whether the other one's ready to wrestle or whatever the case. But this was just to get them out there and get a win and then get some interaction going on with Sting and Darby Allen. So, you know, obviously the guns won the match and a nice win. That was the proper uh, result. And then Sting comes out the entrance way and he's kind of in the, in the owl way. And Austin, the other gun son, the other son of a gun, Says, I'll get him, Dad. And he goes after him. And as he's running up towards Sting, Darby Allen, like the guy in the Barclays Center that took Seth Rollins down, only faster, he came out of nowhere. And it wasn't a dive. Darby Allen doesn't do dives. And thank God for that. He just launches himself like a missile and just body blocked the fuck out of old Austin Gunn. And now Darby and Sting go to the ring and the other two guns bail out. So apparently this is still going to continue. And I'm, I'm not minding it. And Billy is so professional. He had that match with Darby Allen that we loved. What on the other show that we just talked about Rampage. a few days ago, Rampage, um, because he did it exactly as he should and got Darby over exactly like he should and didn't try to insult anybody's intelligence that he's going to be out there taking bumps for a guy that's 100 pounds lighter and a foot shorter. Uh, so if Billy's in there to control this and, and we get a little Billy and Sting, that might be interesting. But I'd I'd like to maybe see the two kids as the team. Just to see if if the other one's ready. I don't know what their situation is. I'm assuming there's a reason why we're not seeing the two kids as a team right now. Well, one would think either that or maybe because there's only two of Darby and Sting. And Billy, Billy kind of has to be in there to fucking shepherd everything, or else you'd have a lot of greenness. I assume this is just a short program, kind of like MJF and Pillman Jr., but I've liked it so far. The body check... <laughs> was one of the coolest things ever. I love Darby Allen. I got he's one of my favorite guys there. Whatever you want to say about him, he's never stupid. He's serious, maybe a little dour, but he's serious. <laughs> I like that word. 
He lays everything in. We said that from the very beginning. He was the one guy in a promotion filled with guys doing dives. His looked like they would kill you. And you know what? They probably wouldn't because he weighs 150 fucking pounds. (laughs) But they look amazing. And he flew out of nowhere, running top speed. He just checked him. I mean, it was brutal. I mean, it looked like it was brutal. And then he got up and he just stared at the ring. And he's serious. And the fans buy him. Darby Allen is one of the highlights of AEW. And I I think he's great. I, this was great. And the place went nuts for it. Yes. And by the way, folks, Dower, according to the American Heritage Dictionary 3rd Edition, Dower, stern, forbidding, silently ill-humored, gloomy. <laughs> See, so there right. you go. There you go. There you go. That's perfect. Dower Darby Allen. <laughs> the man of the Dower. All right, um, then I didn't have time to fast forward it, but if I'd have known what was coming, I would have. Because Adam Cole and Bobby Fish were in the back, and they're speaking to each other, and obviously they're friends, they're best friends, and then the camera widens out, and here comes our little dog pockets, Chuckle Fuck Taylor and Wheeler Udy, and they begin arguing over who are the real best friends. And this is going to lead to a match, which we are not going to watch. I watched it. Well, I ain't going to watch it. You shouldn't watch it. The, not the top team, but two members of the top four-man faction unit for the last three years in NXT comes into this company and argues with job guys and their mascot over the business's stupidest team name. Now we've gone back to AEW of old. Even if you got good talent in something, if it's silliness and they're opposing job guys, insignificant low-level preliminary talent that nobody gives two shits about. What the fuck are you doing? This is what Adam Cole came here for. Good God. So, and then we had Team Taz sitting down with Dante and Leo, Dante Martin, Leo Rush, Tony Schiavone was in there. And with all the Emphasis of a person in a medically induced coma. Dante Martin signed the contract with Team Taz that Leo Rush did not want him to sign. And that was it. Sign me up for this. Sign me up for this. I think Leo Rush is great. I think Taz is great. Dante Martin as a heel. There's something we didn't even think about at all. Let's see how that changes. Let's see if all of a sudden his facial well, but, expressions change. I was about, well, but wait a minute. Is he going to be a healer? Is he going to wrestle the same way he always has? And then Team Taz is going to try to get him to change around and he don't want to, which would seem to be more in line because could Dante Martin at this point and his greenness, should he try to be a heel and take away all of the, the flashiness and the fancy moves and the things, which is his calling card because he doesn't have much else right now because he's got no body, no personality and no experience. Maybe you do like a whole Godfather 2 thing where like Leo goes to the dark side, starts <laughs> hanging out with Team Taz, and all of a sudden one day, or not Leo, um, Dante, and then one day Leo just shows up with Dante's brother. 
who doesn't say a word. He just walks out and stares at him. And Dante realizes what he had to do. I guess that's a bad analogy because Frank Pantangeli kills himself in a bathtub. After well, they just get in, just keep him out of the bathtub. But yeah, I, I mean, so he signed the contract, didn't expect to see that coming, but it just, you know, Tony Schiavone says, we are shocked. It looked like the least shocking thing that ever happened. You know what? They needed to do something with Team Taz, and I don't know where this is going. And we've liked Team Taz, but they've been kind of going nowhere for a long time. They lost Brian Cage. Nobody has missed Brian Cage. I was about to say nobody's looking for him either, are they? No, apparently the only one is his wife goes on social media and says, why aren't they using him? And then they just don't use him. So it's pretty hey, funny. I was going to say, well, wait a minute. I've just, I've realized the failure in my logic here. I was going to say, could somebody impersonate Catfish, as they say, our little dog Pockets' wife to get on Twitter and start complaining, get him fucking run off. But that would mean that people would have to think that he could actually get married. But I think Team Taz, having a new member, a new wrinkle, they needed something. So let's see where they go with this. And it kind of makes Leo the baby face out of the whole thing, which is <laughs> surprising. And like I said, I like Leo. I like Taz. Let's see where they go. Yeah, because Leo's the baby face because he wanted to screw Dante out of his money, but instead Team Taz is screwing Dante out of his money. Technically, right. we only know that Leo wanted to make Dante money. You're assuming that he wanted to screw him, and I understand why. You have jerks like Matt Hardy running around screwing people in front of the camera while they're signing contracts. But I think Leo has shown and, and, that he cares. And telling them that they're going to screw them. Yes. Uh, well, we'll see who's going to screw who. Uh, and what a segue into the girls match, uh, the TBS or is it a affectionately called the hose tournament, uh, Jamie Hayter and Thunder Rosa. I've got to be honest again. I did not fast forward. I started watching this cause I'm a Thunder Rosa fan, but this was the time of the morning where Harley Quinn was having her little kebab treat stick on the foot of the bed in front of me while I was watching the show. And after she finished her stick, she wandered up to me to give me puppy kisses. And that necessitated me turning her over and rubbing her belly. And I was rubbing the belly. And then all of a sudden Thunder Rosa won. So it was a pretty good match from what I figure. Harley enjoyed it. What'd you think about it? I thought it was pretty good. I've liked Thunder Rosa, but actually I've been more and more impressed by Jamie Hayter the last several weeks. I'm surprised that they're already teasing turning Jamie Hayter babyface, especially because they've been teasing the Wardlow thing for a little while. But I like Jamie Hayter. Thunder Rosa's great, and I hope they do something with her. And she's gone forward in the TBS tournament, so maybe they will. But I think Jamie Hayter is really good, too, and uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens with her in the next several months. I think they're, and whenever the Serena's able to come back or from wherever she's she at, hurt? I think she's been injured, but uh, you never know with this company. She may be ready and they just haven't put her on, but they almost have to put Serena or Thunder Rosa in any girls' match to make it work because those are the two that can get a match out of almost anybody. And, you know, un unfortunately, that is sometimes penalizes. A talent that can work and can get other people over and can do jobs while it doesn't necessarily hurt them 
they always get penalized by having to be the ones to do the jobs and getting other people over. But sooner or later, it does hurt in terms of perception. But, you know, they, they st- I, I, I just saw Riho is back. More. She was Riho. on last night, too. It was Riho yes, against Dr. Uh, Britt Baker. Yes, DMD. And, and Riho beat Dr. If, in case anybody's waiting for a rampage uh, review from the Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, it's not going to come because I got tipped to the matches. Riho beats Britt Baker in a non-title match. Uh, well, to be fair, she had the advantage. She has new lace sleeves. <sighs> Made out of corrugated steel. Um, and then also the, 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 the best friends, the, the pudding gang, whatever they're against Cole and fish. So we're not going to watch any of that, but anyway, back to this. That's what I was wondering. Uh, uh, again, Britt Baker and and uh, Jamie Hader argue and shove each other, and Jamie Hader walks out. They're just starting the same kind of thing that they've been doing with MJF and Wardlow with another heel group here. They just do similar things. I'm not sure why you would do one thing that's the same thing as another thing you're doing. But And I like Britt Baker with Rebel and Jamie Hader because Rebel's not really muscle. Jamie Hader's muscle. Rebel's just kind of... Yeah. Uh, flunky, I guess. Well, hey, now there's nothing wrong with in being character. a quality flunky in character. For heaven's sake, I mean, she went to the Mickey Pool School of flunkiness. <laughs> she one of the best flunkies ever. Oh boy! Um, after that match, Officer Bar Brady was in the back with Chris Jericho, and here comes Danny Garcia and 2.0, and they interrupted this promo. And this was all, this whole thing was done so that Jericho could do in a backstage promo, could do square head jokes on the mouthy member of 2.0 and try to get the crowd out in the arena watching the screen to chant square head at the aforementioned 2.0 member. Did you understand this? Or did well, not understand it? Of course, it was understandable. But did you... Why was this necessary? Oh, I know exactly why this was necessary. Because Jericho wasn't on a show any other place? First of all, it wasn't good. Jericho's material gets lamer and lamer. And when you see other good shit on shows, like this show had, and then you see Jericho stuff, it's completely out of place. AEW has left Jericho behind. It's just that he's still there. So we'll see what happens there. But Was this about just Jericho wanting to be in front of the crowd or get a pop? No, no, no. This was the genius of Chris Jericho. This was what Chris Jericho did to MJF. This was what Chris Jericho did to AJ Styles and so many others. Chris Jericho sitting there realizing that Eddie Kingston's the most over guy on these shows, getting monster pops. People love him. People relate to him, whatever it is. This is Jericho's way of latching on to Eddie Kingston for a few weeks so he could be out there with Eddie Kingston. Jericho's the king of latching on to what's happening. The key is you got to try to disengage before he drags you down to his level. And not too many people have successfully been able to do that. Now, see, I don't know now, see, because you're just making accusations there. Now, if Chris Jericho was a person that wanted to latch on to what's popular and sap the, the heat or sap the affection or sap the attention from someone else, then then he would have had a long track record of this from the time he's been in the company. He would have, he would have latched onto 
Well, you know, the, the, the boss's favorite wrestler, the company mascot, my little dog pockets, he would have had a program with him, but that would have made no sense except, oh, well, he would have, he would have latched onto a guy like MJF and he would have made him subservient to Jericho's whims and he would have had him doing stupid things. Oh, well, so he would have, oh, poor Eddie. Poor, poor Eddie. Well, let's hope it's quick. It's only a few weeks. Let's hope Moxley comes back soon and maybe we get Eddie and Moxley again. But I think that's what Wait a is. minute. Now, hold on. You mean to tell me I have to hope Moxley comes back so that I don't have Eddie Kingston ruined by Chris Jericho? That's a Faustian bargain. I'm if not ever saying that. One. I'm not saying that. I'm saying you could also hope for Fozzie to have a hit record. You could also hope well, that. I could also hope for Pamela Anderson to come knocking on my door wanting to blow me. That but hope maybe one more likely to happen. the other one and see which one fills up first. And we heard from a lot of people, and I think we deserve, well, not deserve, we should issue a correction. Apparently the Butcher's Band, again, not necessarily a band I would listen to, much more popular than Fozzie, Chris Jericho's band. We heard from a number of people, some who were even mad at us for not <laughs> recognizing that the Butcher's Band is infinitely times more popular than Chris Jericho's band. So I apologize and I issue a correction. We we do apologize for that. Anyway, so therefore, Jericho's mixed up with Garcia in 2.0. So's Kingston. You don't have to put it in code words to know what's coming next, apparently. But I'll tell you what, Brian. Yeah. If you do want to learn some code words, then I know where you can go. Where's that? Why? It, to hell, of course. No, to Code Academy. <laughs> Folks, if you want to learn all kinds of weird words that you don't know what they mean, you can go to Code Academy. There's never been a better time than right now to become a programmer. I don't even know whether the time is right now or not for me to become a programmer, but I bet it is for you. With Code Academy, you can learn to code on your own terms. And I didn't know that, but apparently that's exactly what you you can call Code Academy. You can say, I'll give you $16. That's your terms, and they'll take it. You can learn code on your own terms. We are living in a fast-changing world, ladies and gentlemen. I, I noticed it the last time that I went out in public. I saw, for heaven's sake, things are now in color. And folks, one of the best ways to succeed in today's ever-changing world is to learn how to code. Whether you're looking to start from scratch or looking to advance Codecademy, can help you reach your coding goals. Did you know, Brian, that over 50 million people already know that Codecademy is the best way to learn code? Yes. Did you know that almost a thousand of those have actually gone to Codecademy and done the learning of the code? Yes. I don't know where those 50 million people are hiding because I can't find one to fix my internet service. Anyway, Codecademy, Codecademy, Anyway, <laughs> Codecademy not only teaches you job-ready coding skills, but also helps you build unique projects for your portfolio. I'll have you know I built a replica of Fort Boonesboro out of toothpicks. You can also earn certificates and even prep for technical interviews. How technical are they? You won't understand a goddamn word that's said there either. 
Um, <laughs> folks, this is, it's a great chance to learn to encode yourself and people will never be able to figure out what you're saying because no matter what your experience level, when you go to Code Academy, when you knock on that front door of Code Academy and they open that big tall door and they let you in and they take your cell phone and your wallet and your passport and they put it no, in that, that little locker. That's not how this works. And then they put you in that room and sit you down in front of that little desk with that pen and that pad of paper and they tell you to get to writing. What? No matter what your experience level, you'll be writing real working code in minutes. Not like that. Hold on. Yes. Just for the record, they accept anybody. There's no big door you have to worry about getting through. The door is wide open. Just go on your computer and you, you have can to learn. Knock three times. No, you could just you go and knock learn. Three times and then twice on the pipes. And that way they know it's a code. And that way they know to open the door and let you in. They have to take people's cell phones and wallets and passports. Elsewise, people would try to take off and spread the secrets. No one. This is code. No one will be taking your phones or wallets, ladies and gentlemen. Well, just until you leave, if they let you. And then when they sit you, you down leave. at that desk and they give you that pad of paper and that pen and you start writing code. No. Well, folks, in some cases, you're writing a note to a loved one asking them to pay the ransom. No. In no, cases, in no cases is that what you're doing. Sometimes the, the note says, fuck these people. Don't pay them. I don't know. It's up <laughs> to you. But, you know, finding the right career or job can impact your life. And you've heard that a lot of people are quitting as part of the great resignation. People have finally said, take this job and shove it. I ain't going out in the pandemic for these pennies. Well, now you can earn dimes and nickels, and you can even aspire to quarters by going to Code Academy, learning the coded languages, Python and Hitamulsis and Sukwol. And Code Academies, they have a personality quiz. You can take this personality quiz to get tailored career advice and course recommendations based on your strengths and entrance and entrances and interests <laughs> is what it says here. Yeah. I took their personality quiz. Oh, no. They told me there is no career suitable for me. <laughs> Stay home. <laughs> Stay home. Stop doing this. Don't do this anymore. You can get instant feedback. As, as we've mentioned, instant feedback is very helpful. Stop touching me. Your breath smells. That's not the feedback you will get. You will get constructive feedback and criticism. No criticism. Feedback that will help you learn how to code. They'll give you criticism. No. If you need to be criticized, they'll say, stay off my leg. <laughs> Build your portfolio and get a certificate of completion. Every time I reach completion, I like a certificate to remind myself of that fact. You'll be more marketable to future employers. You can land a dream job in web development, programming, computer science, data science, weird science, tons more. So join the over 50 million people learning to code with Codecademy and see where coding can take you. Get 15% off your Codecademy Pro membership when you go to Codecademy.com and use the promo code EXPERIENCE. Promo code EXPERIENCE at Codecademy.com. 15% off Codecademy Pro, the best way to learn to code. That's C-O-D-E-C-A-D-E-M-Y, Codecademy.com, 15% off. It's the best way to learn. What is the worst way to learn to code? Listen to Jim Cornette. There you go. Well, Jim, we've been talking about Thanksgiving, and of course, we brought up Dr. Britt Baker earlier talking about the Jimmy Hader match. 
Surprisingly, we combined the two things now on AEW, <laughs> Thanksgiving dinner and Britt Baker. Well, after Britt Baker's cohort, Jamie Hayter, got beat in the tournament, and then they had words and Jamie Hayter walked out on her. Naturally, Britt Baker and Reba were both so upset they had to go back in the back and sit down to a Thanksgiving dinner prepared especially for them at a table with Tony Schiavone. Was this odd placement to you? Did it seem like they would maybe have their Thanksgiving? I know they don't want to eat a big meal before they wrestle, but they weren't wrestling. They could have had the Thanksgiving dinner earlier and just not let Jamie have any. Said, oh, you can't eat because you got to wrestle. And then that was the reason why she got lost because she snuck a drumstick. Something like that. But they just went from the match and the fallout, and now they're in the back eating a staged Thanksgiving dinner, obviously set there at that table just for this shot. I don't know what the point of this is. <laughs> and why is one of the announcers palling around with and agreeing with and going along with the heels in their foolishness? Well, it's always Shivani. It's always Shivani. But they're working a whole deal over Shivani and Britt are friends, and Adam Cole is jealous of Tony Shivani. And what they've got is one of their announcers palling around with and giving validity to the ramblings of one of the heels. That doesn't make sense. The announcer is supposed to disagree with all the obnoxious and egocentric shit that the heel says. Hey, whatever happened to Tony Schiavone's son? Remember they did the angle where QT Marshall beat up Schiavone's son and then yes. the big show saved him? Yes, his, but Tony's middle-aged <laughs> fucking <laughs> auto mechanic son that got so much sympathy because he was a Mere 40 years old when he was beaten down. And that, uh, no, but he was going to break in. Mentioned. Wasn't he training to be a wrestler? That's why he was involved that's in what that. They, that's what they said. All right. And that was the last we saw of him. Yes. Okay. So basically, this is where Tony showed some footage and announced that Riho will take on Britt Baker on Friday, and, and which was, as we record this, last night. And we're not going to watch it because Riho won because... I guess even though Harpo's taking time off for his surgeries, does he still have his finger in the women's division? Why else would Riho defeat Britt Baker on television? I don't think Kenny Omega is the only Riho supporter in the company. And I also don't think Kenny Omega is taking a big step away from any of his normal tasks, even though he's having So he's not, gonna, he's not going to pull his finger out of the women's division. Even though he's on the sidelines is what you're saying. I don't know where his finger is. I don't know where it's been. Anyway, um, the next match I was actually looking forward to seeing because it was Colt Cabana against Brian Danielson. And we're in Chicago, which is not only the hometown of CM Punk, but it's the last place in the universe that anybody still cares about Colt Cabana. So I'm saying this shouldn't be bad. And... The thing about Cabana, as I've mentioned years ago when we used to talk about him, back when he did shit, he can work. He's not only normal-sized, but good-sized. He's 230 pounds. He's six feet tall or more. He can work. Not only can he work regular when he wants to, he can work and be serious and not make the funny facials, but he's excellent with Matt wrestling, and he spent a lot of time in the United Kingdom, and he studied the world of sports style. We even had him 
in Ring of Honor years ago, I think it was Dave Taylor we brought in, in in Atlanta so they could do a little world of sport match because he's good at it. It's Cabana's always been one of these guys that was just a comedian because he wanted to be, not because he had to be. And the thing is, his comedy, he did stand-up comedy, which I saw clips of, was never funny. And his matches, never funny. They're just silly. And he made faces and did things. But he can work when he tries, and he can be serious when he tries. And he tried here. Until the end, we'll get to that in a second. But this needed to be a strong heel win for Brian Danielson over a guy that can work, that can have a good match, that the people in the building would like because it's his hometown, and that's what they did. And both of them, uh, they knew that. And I mean, I, I had to do one time, uh, God, what Delirious wanted to do Colt and Davy Richards. And I said, all right, but can Colt be serious? Because doing that fucking ha-ha is the complete antithesis of what Richards does, and he's the one we're pushing. And even if he beats Colt, if Colt isn't serious, it can make Davy Richards look stupid. And he all he can do it, and he did. <clears throat> he can do it when he wants to, and he and he did. Danielson healed on him. You mentioned earlier in the program. You could tell Danielson on his face is having a ball, because this is so easy. Because he can play these these fans like a fiddle, and knows how to heal them while still being <laughs> the friendly, smiling faced guy, and just saying the little needly things that gets under their their skin. But anyway, they, you know, come back, boom, 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 back and forth. And finally, Danielson got the LaBelle lock. And the only criticism I have of Colt in this is, did you see? I don't know that there was ever a more unenthusiastic or unurgent tap in my life. He gets LaBelle lock <laughs> and Colt, and he just kind of goes, where nobody could see it. Did he not want to tap out in Chicago? I didn't even see the tap actually at first. There was barely one there. It was sort of like he was drumming his fingers on the mat and the referee said, fuck it. I'll take it. Yeah. I thought they were trying to tease that he may tap, but he was going quick and the referee had to stop it. I'm still not sure what they were trying to give off there. What I thought what they were trying to give off was Colt was kind of miffed that he's getting, having to tap out instead of getting pinned in his hometown. And so he did it in a very lackluster fashion. He can't have a problem with this. Of all the people to lose to, one of the biggest guys in the company, a big star. Then then how do you explain the fucking measly little tap and there was no feet kicking, there was no hand tapping, there was no... It was like... Okay. But it was good till then. But then it killed the tap out. Um, Was that one of Colt's teeth? Maybe that was the problem. Because when when they come back and they do the interview with Tony in the ring with Danielson, there was a tooth laying there, which he picked. It looked like a tooth with a it looked it was a fake tooth with a post in it, which those I can tell you because I've got two or three of them. They come out easier than the regular teeth. Um, so it it was a tooth, all right, and he held it up. Danielson did in his in his hand, but um, I I let he's a, he. He's being a heel by being a babyface 
a smart-ass baby face that is getting a heel response. And he even mentioned, well, I thought I'd get a different response, but Chicago's fickle. And they, it's it just, he's like, he's, he's playing him like a fiddle. And he challenged another member of the dork order next week in Atlanta to lead up to the ultimate head kicking in that he mentioned, Adam Page. As soon as Page's name had come out of his mouth, they hit the music. And Brian, besides besides it being obviously set up because there's no way, I mean, it's almost too fast, even if you know it's coming to hit that for a, a human reaction, right? They could build the tension. Danielson has been saying a variety of things, but he has not addressed Adam Page yet. Instead of playing the music as soon as he says Adam Page's name, why don't I end this Adam Page? He's a no good this and that and the other thing and blah, blah, blah. And I hate him and his dog's ugly and his wife is fucking constantly texting me or what? It just three or four remarks on page. So the people now have got, he's running page down. He's running page down. And then you hit the page music and it gets an even bigger pop because, oh, he's going to come out and stop this. They can't pop for, oh, he's going to come out and stop this when they've just heard that he just started it seconds before. You see what I'm saying? I agree with you. It builds a little tension. But anyway, Paige comes out, finally offers to defend right here and right now. And Danielson declines since he's already wrestled. And of course, that offer was not cowboy shit, but coward shit. That, ooh. And Paige won't leave without a fight and offers Danielson the first shot. And that's where Daniels, I'm not going to do this. And then he slaps him. And then here they have the hockey fight. And real quick, he chucks Paige to the apron, but Paige goes for the buckshot lariat and Danielson bails out the other side. Great stuff. Now I want to see what happens when they get a hold of each other. Because they didn't give it all to me. They didn't go out in the building and fight for 10 minutes in the women's room where I don't ever want to see anymore. Now I want to see what's going to happen when they get together. It's a wrestling show. And we're an hour and a half into this thing. And it's still a fucking wrestling show. I was amazed, Brian sing the praises of Danielson. I think Danielson's doing some of the best work of his whole career. I've not enjoyed him this much since that run he had where they finally gave him the main event at WrestleMania, which wasn't going to happen. And then Punk quit. You know, of course, I mean, there's a whole number of things that make it an interesting scenario. Or I shouldn't say Punk quit. Punk left and then they released him on his wedding day. That's exactly what happened. But Danielson is doing incredible work. He's clearly having the time of his life. I think these are some of the best promos he's ever done in his life. He's obviously not being handed a script anymore, and he could do it. And he comes across believable as that, I don't know what you call it, kind of like a Billy Robinson. Like, yeah, he could be nice, but he's going to kick your ass. He's going to stretch you a hundred different ways. And that he's threatening them. I'm going to kick your face in. I'm going to do this and that. Again, there's a lot of crappy Dark Order members. So we can draw this out until he gets the page. I love this. I mean, AEW right now, the things that are hitting are hitting as well as they could. And Danielson, since the heel turn to me, has been phenomenal. 
Well, you know, part of the thing with the promos is just these guys are not only wrestlers, but they're wrestling fans and they talk to and are out amongst the fans. And so they know what to say that will register with these people. Whereas the, the comedy writers and the other company, they don't ever talk to the fans and they, and, they, and they're mad at the fans because the fans always say, ah, oh, this fucking writing sucks. Cause it does. So they have no, not only no interaction with real wrestling fans, but also no, no impetus to write stuff for guys that fans would want to hear because they don't even know what it is. So the, like I said, AEW gets to run away with these type of segments because they come off as what fans want to hear is what they believe that these guys would really say, not orchestrated, written down bullshit. And, you know, again, Danielson, you mentioned Billy Robinson, the, the, I'll kick your ass in a heartbeat and I'll break your fingers and all that stuff. That's true. But Danielson, <laughs> Robinson could be a bit dour. He was not a smiling, fun, loving baby face. Um, and, and whereas I, the reason I like Danielson's is because he's saying it with that impish grin and he's such a little smart ass but without even really saying smart ass things. It's just the, what he's saying in the particular way and to who he's saying it to or about the tone of his voice. And also the smile is slightly changed. There was a point during the <laughs> thing last week with him and Paige, I think it was last week or two weeks ago. I forget what it was where at one point he said something and he, he kind of laughed at his own joke. And it was a heel laugh and smile. It was a completely <laughs> different thing. But I'm enjoying this, and I look forward to seeing where this is going to go. More of this. This is great. You know, I'm just thinking, Brian, that with the roster that AEW is assembling now, they ought to have like a, a wall of fame in their entranceway. Wall of fame? Where a wall of fame with pictures of all these greats. They've got CM Punk. They've got Brian Danielson. They've got hang mad Adam page. They've got FTR. They've got all kinds of talent. They should have a wall of fame with pictures of these people framed in the entrance way so that all the entering wrestlers could walk by this pantheon of immortals. What do you think? Is that an idea? I think it's an interesting idea. Of course, you're talking to the first person to get in trouble for defacing the wall of fame at long beach high school years ago. I think it's a great idea. Well, it, in all fairness to you, it wasn't the best picture of you they put up. But I still don't think that just because your picture was hanging on that wall, that they wasn't it. got you for defacing it. They installed a wall of fame all of a sudden at my high school, featuring some really famous people, because we had a lot of famous people go to my high school, Billy Crystal, Rick Rubin, and then local political idiots. So when they launched a wall of fame, I went in the library and took a Sharpie and wrote on a couple pieces of paper that I taped together the word politics, and I glued it to the thing so it said the wall of politics. <laughs> and they immediately called me to the dean's office, and I explained to the deans, because I had good relationship with them, exactly what I did, why I did it, why I thought it was funny. And they said they couldn't let anyone know that they agreed with me, but if I just hung out in the office for a little bit so people thought I was being reprimanded, then I can go and no problems. And that's what happened. You know what they should have done. You know what you should have done. What's that? See, if you had just had a skylight frame up on that wall, oh, then you could have put anything you wanted in that frame. But when some authority figure 
tried to come around and take a peek, you could just, boom, change it to something else. And that way they would see the inoffensive picture until they walked by and then, boom, another picture would pop up that may be a little bit more edgy, so to speak. Interesting theory there. Maybe someone who didn't go, yeah. That's right. Maybe a, a picture of pockets, for heaven's sake, someone who didn't go to any school. But nevertheless, with a skylight frame, you can change these things in the twinkling of an eye with just the tap of the screen. The skylight frames not only show one picture, they show multiple pictures. And we've mentioned it, folks. The skylight frame is a photo frame that you can update instantly by email from anywhere. It sets up effortlessly in under 60 seconds. You plug it in, use the touch screen, connect to the Wi-Fi if you don't have Spectrum, and enjoy. You can send photos to the skylight frame from all everybody in the family can send pictures to one person's skylight frame. So you got a picture of Aunt Betty and Uncle Gladys and Cousin Junior and whoever else. They're all popping up. They pop up in seconds. Multiple people sending pictures to this same frame. It's phantasmagorical. It's got a black frame and a white mat. So it looks like a real photo frame. It is a real photo frame because it's framing photos. The gorgeous 10-inch touchscreen that you can swipe through pictures with your finger. You can even tap it and thank the person who sent you one of the pictures. So if somebody sends you a picture, you can tap them. And it's 100% satisfaction guaranteed. If you don't love your Skylight Frame, they will offer you a full refund. You're a real prick if you take it, but they'll offer it to you. And you can also, you can load it up beforehand. Preload is what they call it. With your favorite pictures, if you want to give it a personalized gift, so you could have pictures of you and your whole family or you and your close social circle, and you give it to somebody that's involved, they love it. It's the holidays. If you give one of these for Christmas or Hanukkah or New Year's, birthday, whatever holiday is coming up, Kwanzaa, it doesn't matter. It's better than TV. They can just sit there, especially old people can just sit there and watch the photos pass by. So Vince would remember. Well, there was the Rock. Ilsenberg. The Rock. And there was, uh, oh, shit. It's Tootsmont. I see him coming now. Folks, the reviews on Facebook are quite complimentary to the skylight frames. And now, as a special offer, You can get $10 off your purchase of a Skylight Frame when you go to skylightframe.com. That's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T, skylightframe.com, and enter the code DRIVE. $10 off your purchase of a Skylight Frame at skylightframe.com. Enter the code DRIVE, and you'll have this dad sitting on the shelf or hanging on the wall or wherever you put it, and these pictures will fly by, and you'll realize, well, I don't know who half these assholes are. But you'll love it. Oh, that's right. Skylight frame. (laughs) Well, Jim, you know what? You should do that as a rib. What? Send your grandmother who's maybe, maybe losing a step. Send her the picture of skylight, of of the skylight frame, and then send her pictures of people that she doesn't know and say, hey, grandma. Why would someone do that? Because then, hey, grandma, did you get pictures of? Aunt Fanny and Uncle Felcher and all these other people she don't know. And she goes, yes, I don't remember them. You don't? Well, hell, they've been in the family for 30 years, Grandma. What's the matter with you? 
You could fuck her mind up like that. I heard they did that with Vince. They sent pictures of the active roster. He had no <laughs> idea who anyone was. Except for Shelton. Ah, Shelton. Great egg. Well, that was egg-siding. Uh, should we go to the main event? Oh, I forgot Danielson wasn't the main event. Yes, let's go. Well, to the actually, match. he was, but the, should we go to the last match? Yes. All right. This all-purpose stew, a gumbo of a match, if you will, um, a burgoo of a dish oh. where they just threw everything in, Malachi Black, Andre Oliolio, and FTR with Tully and Andre Stooge against the Lucha Brothers and Pac and Cody with Arn Anderson and Alex Abrahantes. So both their managers were double A on that team. <laughs> Again. Good point. Wow, very good. I don't know where to begin with this thing. Um, as we've said, it takes all the aura off of Malachi Black being this spooky, strange person when he's associating with, you know, friend on a friendly basis or even just a civil basis with heels or baby faces. He should be a loner guy. Uh, the Lucha Brothers are the exact opposite opponents that you want for FTR. When they FTR's best tag team in the business, and when after that lucha shit, they're better at it than anybody else at getting a match out of these guys. But still, it's bleh. Cody's on the babyface team, and he is has incendiary heat, molten lava level heat with these people. They boo every time he draws a breath. Um, I it just. Because they can't just have rematches, because that would make sense and might help guys out. They've got to fucking fiddle up and make multi-man matches with reluctant partners that don't fit and make no sense. Um, so this was the last match, but at least we'd made it about an hour and 40 minutes in before this started. And there are people in this match that you do want to see, just not all of them, and usually not in these combinations. Dax and Cody started and sharp, quick, snug pro wrestling. Anytime you got Dax or cash in, it's a level above what everybody else does. Um, as soon as Cody did anything, they just came unglued. They were, they're offended by his presence. It's not even booing a heel. Now it's just like, we don't want to see you do anything. And they, they, he needs to go ahead and, and be a heel because he's not, this is not going to get anywhere. Him trying not to be a heel. I almost think he has to be subtly trying to be a heel now, but they did the fucking spot. I swear to God, I've seen this before, not often, but there have been really unpopular baby faces before and I guess and you probably seen something like it in ECW cuz they were that was the first really anti baby face promotion where we don't want to see people being baby faces but Cody took his weight belt off and threw it out in the crowd and the crowd grabbed it and a guy in a cornet face t-shirt threw it back in the ring and that got the biggest pop of the match 
they came unglued when fucking when the crowd threw the belt back. And I'm trying to th- I I seem to remember the crowd throwing something back on the dynamic dudes one time. I think I, they threw back Cena's towel for that ECW pay per view. Yeah, yes, that's when they had the ECW pay per view. They threw Cena's towel back. It's happened a few times through him, but this was, and the joyousness, it wasn't even a cheer pop. It was a laughing and happy pop. You know, Chicago is where the Chicago Cubs famously have their fans. If a home run from a visiting team is hit into the bleachers or wherever, I guess, they throw it back on the field. They really popularize that. But this was beyond that. This was, these people hate Cody. (laughs) And I want to say one thing about this, and we can continue talking about this match. I actually saw people, I don't know if you saw this, upset that the fan could have hurt someone throwing the belt into the ring. What? He could have hurt Aubrey, could have hurt the wrestlers. Someone could have lost an eye. Forgetting the fact that Cody just (laughs) threw it into the crowd. He threw it into a crowd blind out in the dark. And he couldn't say, and they're all together. No, he did it safely. He did it in a very careful way to prevent any injury. No, he, he threw fucking, it into the fucking he crowd. He side-armed it into the fucking crowd as hard he, as he could. And they all grabbed it and fought over it to be the one to grab it and throw it back. And saying the guy in the cornet face shirt came out on top. Way to go, pal. Hold on, wait a minute. But I think only my fans should only throw things into the ring if they have been thrown from the ring beforehand. Don't don't throw anything into the ring unless the people in the ring have thrown it at you. It's a very good point. There you go. Um, and then security, one of the security guys, did you see this? Well, Andre got in and got the belt that the the fan threw back and he was going to keep it, but I guess he put it down on the apron. One of the security guys in the corner of the ring had it and Cody motioned and the security guy threw the belt back to Cody and the people booed. (laughs) And there's other guys in the ring trying to do spots. And this whole business with the belt and people's hatred of Cody is overshadowing the match. So Anyway, as soon as Penthouse tagged in, he came off the top rope with a drop kick to, I think, one of FTR's balls in front of the referee. Uh, they can't. At one time they did that. JR even had to mention, isn't isn't that a low blow? They just they just come up with shit to do and don't think about the placement or whether it's legal or not or whether they should do it. They just oh, it's a move. Um, I've wanted to ask you this question because you're the big baseball fan. Why does Andre wrestle in Abe Knuckleball Schwartz's pants? <laughs> I'm not exactly sure. And uh, again, some folks on this holiday weekend, if you Google a photo of Abe Knuckleball Schwartz and then look at Andre in the pants he was wearing, it'll be fucking hilarious. So then... Penthouse and Felix and Pack did a deal where Penthouse is in the ring. He tags Felix to come in, and Felix, before he even steps off the apron into the ring, tags Pack, who's standing right next to him. Like that is a thing that can happen. And then they both got in and started doing a fucking triple team, apparently reconciling in their pea brains that because. 
the guy that was in the ring has tagged another guy. That guy can stay in for five seconds, but the guy he tagged can come in. But also the guy that the guy that got tagged tagged can come in at the same time. And I guess for a period of time there, both of them are legal. This is not a thing in the world that can happen. They've made this completely up so that they can get in and do a goofy spot that they came up with, which is kind of like if you can make a trick basketball shot from out of bounds, it still doesn't count because it's out of bounds. And once that the Lucha brothers got in there together and, and everything and, and Andre and Pac, the gymnastics meet started. At one point, all four heels started getting heat on, on Cody behind the referee's back and the place blew. They just cheered to the heavens. And then Cody hit a hot tag and they didn't even boo it. They didn't cheer or boo or anything. I've seen some of the coldest tags in the history of tag team wrestling on AEW television programs. And still people make some kind of noise, but no, not for. And as a matter of fact, then they started getting heat on Felix and he made a completely iceberg tag to penthouse. I'm surprised to penthouse's hand didn't fall off from frostbite. And they reacted to that. Uh, there were too many people in the match and it got too busy and too complicated. FTR could not run this whole show. At one point, everybody just took turns hitting finishes on each other over and over at a hundred miles an hour with no covers and no tags while Aubrey stood there with her mouth open gaping. And then everybody went down and Tully and Arn got in the ring to face off and he got a big pop. But for some unknown reason, the manager, after everybody just laid each other out with all these moves, there was no cheating going on. They were just hitting each other with moves. There was The cheating was that nobody was tagging. But there was no reason for the managers to jump in. They said they were the only ones left on their feet. And they get in the ring to face off, which does get a pop, but is also fucking illegal. And there was no reason for the managers to get in the ring and stand there while the referee was standing there looking at them saying, well, I guess you shouldn't be in the ring. And then as they're facing off, what's uh Jose is the stooge for Andre. He gets in the ring yelling at somebody to do something and Tully and Arn turn and fucking both nail him. And he takes a bump. And then the match just started again and Tully and Arn got out of the ring and went back to the floor. And FTR had to stand there and as one time, one of the Lucha brothers is coming off the top rope and Dax looks up to catch him, but he ain't ready to jump yet. So Dax actually had to stand there and just turn around in a circle. And wait on this idiot to jump off the top rope so that he could catch him. And then Andre beat Pac after Black misted him in the face. This was way too busy and nonsensical and a mess. But 
the good part about it was the young bucks weren't in it and at least they were being serious even if half of the participants don't really know what the fuck they're doing your thoughts i didn't like it at all the cody stuff distracts from everything else I can almost say that I don't care about anything that happens in a match or I didn't pay attention to anything in the match. The Cody reaction is all I'm paying attention to. It's so fascinating. Malachi has something. FTR are the best in-ring tag team in the business. But I think Andrade, whatever it is, to me, he's not doing it. And to me, he's almost like negative charisma. I kind of don't want to see this guy anymore. I'm bored with him. Yeah, yeah. The Lucha Brothers and FTR, they're going to finish this up. They announced a two out of three falls match. So this is on the road to getting there. Whatever they're teasing with Cody and Pac, we'll see what happens there. But the Cody thing at this point is just a major distraction. And there's something they could do with them. We'll see if it happens. But does the reason so many people think this is all part of a plan to make Cody the greatest heel of all time is because of how preposterous it is for him to come out with his entrance, wearing his outfit, it looks like Michael Jackson on the 4th of July, <laughs> and then he comes in the ring and he acts like a disingenuous babyface. Now that we've seen Punk and Danielson and others, even people in the company already, do genuine, real promos, and we've seen Cody rehearsing and practicing. We've seen Cody asking everyone their opinion and workshopping. And we've heard Cody's promos that are nonsensical, overthought, and don't give you any reason to cheer him. It's almost like Cody is the heel, and everyone's catching up to it, but what happens next is going to be interesting, because it's becoming a major distraction for anything he's a part of. This was an eight-man tag match, and all I cared about was the fans booing Cody. It seemed like it was the only thing they cared about, too. I was about to say, they were enjoying themselves in that little world as well. The Arn and Tully stuff I don't like. I just think it's sad, and I don't want to see it. And I'm sorry if I'm alone in saying that, but I don't need to see Arn and Tully doing stuff against each other in 2021. 2022, well, it's about to be, so. Here's the thing. This is one of those things where, honestly, Mark Booking takes over. Yes, most fans would pop to see Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard squaring off. But how do you get there and how do you get out of it? That's what they don't know. So they never, they never, they never have a reason to get there and they never have a way to get out of it. They just square off and then they don't. And, but it's, you know, for fans of 80s and 90s uh, WCW programs, that's a spot that you have to do. Well, there has to be a reason for the spot, and there has to be a payoff for the spot. And, you know, neither one of those guys gets too physical anymore, so maybe don't tease something that you can't deliver just because it's a good spot. But that's just me. But yes, you pretty much summed that up, and uh, busy, long, and complicated. But they got... They got an hour and 40 minutes in on this program without, and this wasn't as insulting or ridiculous as a lot of stuff. So once again, we have to give them a nice little round of applause. And no wonder that the fine folks up in WWE land can't figure out what's going on because this program is so much easier to watch than theirs. This program is more exciting than theirs in the good stuff. This program 
is much more like pro wrestling than anything the WWE is producing. And now that they have talent in AEW, whereas before they were short on that, you know, you you can't watch a WWE show anymore and go, well, fuck, this is, it, it, you pretty much have to acknowledge that this is just boring and the other stuff at least is more exciting. You know, I, again, to my comment earlier in the show, the good stuff in AEW right now, which all happens to be the serious stuff in AEW right now, is exactly what we hoped AEW would be. Sports-based wrestling in the vein of Mid-South Wrestling for 2021 or for 2019, whenever they first started up. The Danielson stuff, Darby Allen slugging the gun kid, the <laughs> MJF punk segment, you know, even Britt Baker. I think there's a lot of stuff on this show that's really good. And there's even stuff I love that Taz and, and Leo Rush and Dante. There's a lot of stuff that's good. And everything that's good is the serious shit. And to me, this is what the product should be. Completely the opposite of WWE and everything else out there, which always just ends up mirroring WWE in one form or another. The Buck stuff, the Jericho stuff, that shit fits on Raw. The good stuff we're seeing in AEW is the best stuff we're seeing in wrestling, and it shouldn't be watered down a around a bunch of crap and bad comedy. Either create a separate show where it could just have the stupid shit and the comedy shit, or what are you doing? What the fuck are you doing? Well, it's a good thing. Go ahead. No, it's just the good shit is so fucking good right now, and when you follow that up with the best fucking friends, it makes me not want to support you. But that's all I'm saying. The good thing is, it's been almost three years, and some of these contracts are coming up. And one would have to think that we will, I mean, already somebody sent in, a, a, I think it was the AEW Botches account, sent out a tweet saying, well, we haven't seen Jelly in months. We haven't seen Sonny Kiss in months. We And, and oh, and by the way, Dwarf Dong Sucker has disappeared from the side of the Lucha, not the Lucha, the Luchasaurus, the Jungle Expert, Jurassic, Jurassic. Express, trying Jurassic. to figure that out. So. Even if he's not making a public announcement like the WWE does, we wish so-and-so the best in their future endeavors because we just fired their ass, He's it's turning over. We haven't had to see those people in a long time and probably never will again, thankfully, because now there's talent in. If there's just some way, like I said, so the three-year contracts, a lot of those are coming due and there'll be some turnover. If there was just some way that we could reignite the interest on the part of the WWE in the Hardly Boys so that they would make a big offer and the Hardly Boys could accept it, they can go and they do... They just re-signed. Well, that's what I was... I heard they re-signed for some... I was thinking they can go and do comedy and fit in over there in fantasy land and we could have a wrestling show if they just get rid of the Hardly Boys. But they... Sign him again because Tony's personal friends with him. And he, even if he knows at this point, he doesn't want to tell him that they've fucked up his whole fucking company for the past two years. And we're just getting the chance to see what it could be without their influence. But, uh, it, you know, well, here, let me ask you this. If AEW lost Brian Danielson tomorrow, would it hurt AEW? I think it would. What about CM it would, Punk? It would hurt the show. Qual oh, my God. Yeah, it would. It would hurt the show quality. It might hurt the ratings a bit. 
the the AEW fans that were there would certainly not turn their backs on the company over it, but it would hurt in terms of any new viewership and definitely in terms of show quality. CM Punk, same thing, correct? Yes. If AEW lost Chris Jericho and the Young Bucks, would it hurt AEW in any way? I don't see how, because again, the same thing, the, the people are going to come that like AEW, regardless of who's on the card, because it's AEW, it's like an ECW a thing. Or, But no, the match quality would go drastically up if we didn't have to see the Hardly Boys all the time, and Jericho, if we didn't have him latching on to the guys that can still go and, you know, trying to sap all the interest off of them, that would make a better show as well. So I, I think, yes, if they lost Danielson, they lost uh, Punk, it would hurt. Jericho and the Hardly Boys, <laughs> I don't think it would affect anything. But it's not going to happen. But I don't think it would affect anything, and that's important to note. I know, and I was being facetious. I know full well that the WWE is not going to make the Hardly Boys a fucking offer. They made all those guys an offer just to see if they could sign them up and hide them somewhere so that Tony Khan would get discouraged and go on about his business. When that didn't work, they'd never fucking hire half those guys they offered, made offers to again. That'd be ridiculous, because then they wouldn't be preventing a an unknown entity from doing a startup. That's what all those offers were about. Now they know what the entity is. They're not taking it seriously. They probably should. But when they saw the initial talent that they made offers to, they probably didn't take it seriously. Now with Danielson and Cole and Punk and this guy and that guy, they're, they may be starting to take it a little more seriously. Sets them up in good position to go to TBS. And again, the thing that I've been optimistic about with Punk and MJF after a couple weeks and Danielson and Adam Page after a couple weeks, it appears they're not rushing these two programs. And that's a good thing because everything I've seen on TV has made me want to see more. And I'm not at the point yet where I want to see physicality or the match. I just want to see more of the buildup to it. Yeah. Anticipation where I can't wait to see the match. And it's been really good so far. And I'll, maybe we'll start getting some rematches too so that we can actually have some fun. These fucking idiots. They've left match after match sitting because they don't do rematches, which the wrestling business was built on. So, But anyway, speaking of building businesses, what is on the Arcadian Vanguard Network slate for this week? Another action-packed week on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Get information about all the shows on Twitter, at Super Podcasts, or on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Arcadian Vanguard. A few notes. Stay tuned for more information in the coming weeks about a couple of new shows coming to Arcadian Vanguard. One of them we talked about briefly, Brian Solomon's Shut Up and Wrestle. We'll have another announcement coming very soon about another show we're really excited about that we've been working on for quite a while. Stay tuned for that. Want to mention this week of the latest episode of Stick to Wrestling with John McAdam at McAdamPod.com or available wherever you find your favorite podcasts. This week, John's guest is Barry Rose, and they talk about Everything outside of Starcade that happened on Thanksgiving 1986. What was the WWF doing? What about the AWA, World Class, UWF? Find out on Stick to Wrestling with John McAdam at McAdamPod.com, available wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Also want to make mention of the Mid-Atlantic Championship Podcast, Mike Sempervivi and Roman Gomez. Several new episodes have just dropped. Check them out today.
relive wrestling history, midatlanticpod.com, or search for the Mid-Atlantic Championship Podcast wherever you find your favorite podcast. And of course, the 605 Super Podcast, The Mothership! Go through the archive today at 605pod.com, available wherever you find your favorite podcast. Hear what has everyone talking, the greatest wrestling podcast of all time. The 605 Super Podcast, The Mothership! God damn it, I knew you were going to do another one. You never know. You made me belch up my Cajun spicy <laughs> fried turkey. That's going to make me puke. Ugh. All right, we are going to do something now on the program. Since it's a holiday weekend, and we get to do what we want on the holidays, we've been trying to start this for some time, and there's always something coming up or some other big show or somebody doing something stupid, but we got an email a while back from Jason. Yeah, from New Albany, Indiana, by the way, right uh, right across the river here. But that's why they call it Kentuckiana, a little bit of Kentucky, a little bit of Indiana. But anyway, um, he mentioned that uh, he had done some searches on YouTube. He couldn't find too many conversations that I've had on championship wrestling from Florida, otherwise than talking about Kevin Sullivan, Eddie Graham. And he was mentioning, was just wondering what your first experience with the territory was, Florida and what you thought of it in the 70s and early 80s. Obviously, you've explained why you went to Mid-South from Memphis instead of other territories, but if the opportunity to go to Crockett in 1985 didn't happen, do you think you and the Midnight would have been successful in Florida or anywhere else for that matter? And that got us to start thinking, well, what if we had gone, you and me being us, what if we had gone somewhere else in January of 1985? And for longtime listeners of the program, the Midnight Express and I had been in Mid-South Wrestling working for Bill Watts from November of 83 to December of 84. And when we were told we were finishing up, we had already had a standing offer from both Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes to come to the Carolinas and work for Jim Crockett. So that's obviously where we wanted to go. And I called and, and made the arrangements to to get a start date because we hadn't been told anything by Watts or Bill Dundee or anybody, just you're finishing on what a December 15th or whatever it was. So we had that waiting on us, so we took it. Well, then we heard from Dundee that Watts wanted us to go to Dallas, that they were making arrangements to book us over there for world class, the Von Erics, because Watts and Fritz were going to start a talent sharing agreement. Fritz already had TV and with that world-class syndication in a number of Watts's markets, especially up in Oklahoma. And so that way Watts could bring us back to Mid-South shows like the Superdome or the Oklahoma City and Tulsa shows or something big, whatever, Houston. And that was the idea behind that. And Fritz owned a piece of some of the Oklahoma towns. I was about to say, and he did at that point have points in Tulsa and Oak City. They didn't really run, Watts didn't run any spot shows in Oklahoma. He just had the two big towns, and my God, they were gold mines. I've told a story we did, what was it, $160,000 in one day in between Tulsa and Oak City for the last stampede, and they were just huge houses. 
but he didn't run any spot shows, and Oklahoma was closer to Texas, so Fritz went into especially southern Oklahoma with a lot of his spot shows. But anyway, so the point was now we're we're beholden to Watts for giving us our break and uh, putting us in a spot where we could go anywhere we wanted to. So we said, all right. So we called Crockett back and explained the situation that Watts wanted us to go to Dallas so that he could still have some dates and et cetera. And of course that's when one of the first things that Jimmy Crockett ever said to me, and I thought I'd started a promotional war when I told him that he said, well, that's okay. It's not the first time Bill Watts has screwed me. I'm like, oh, shit, what am I starting <laughs> here? God damn it. I don't want to be in this position. But so that's what Wouldn't happened. Wouldn't be the that's last why, time either. Well, exactly. <laughs> so that's why we went to Dallas and we spent six months there. And I mentioned there, it was a great rest after Mid-South. We only worked five days a week usually. All the t- Monday in Fort Worth and and Friday in Dallas, so we were home two nights a week. Of I mean, in town where we lived, two nights a week. A lot of the spot shows were close. Of course, there was the South Texas business, which didn't draw, and you couldn't make any money. And every once in a while, you'd fly Southwest out to West Texas, which you did really didn't make any money out there at that point in time. But at least it was cheap to get there. But we, you know, we put our time in there until we realized that we weren't going to go very much further. And we'd been working with the Fantastics for six months, which we loved it. But, you know, we you needed to work with Von Erichs to make money. So we we got our payoff for Texas Stadium <laughs> and we gave our notice and we ended up going to Crockett. But that was in the 1st of July of 1985. If we'd have backed up, and in January 1985, we had had no plans. We thought we'd take a look at what the options were and and tell people a little bit about not only whether we would have gone there, but why, what kind of money there was to be made in the different territories, what the living arrangements were, or the travel, or what just what fit and why. And as we sat down, Brian and I ran this by you, and you added a couple of things. Because somebody, uh, Jason, in his email also said that I guess in 1985, your choices were limited as where you could go. Well, these were the territories still operating in 1985. Championship wrestling from Florida. Georgia championship wrestling was operating but it had been kneecapped and handicapped because in 1984, when Vince bought out the existing company by getting the Briscoe's shares and a couple other people and left Ole out in the cold, Ole had gone, well, TBS got a bunch of letters, complaints from people wanting to see their, as they termed it, Gordon Soley wrestling, and instead they got the WWF and they were pissed. And so... Turner gave Ole a early morning Saturday time slot for championship. What was he calling it? Championship wrestling from Georgia at that point. That's right. Correct. Yeah. So Ole had TV and he was running towns, but it wasn't setting the world on fire. You also had continental championship wrestling in Alabama. You also had the Memphis territory. You had Crockett promotions in the Carolinas and Virginia. You had Mid-South Wrestling in Louisiana, Oklahoma, Texas, and Arkansas. 
you had world class in Dallas and as we mentioned all over the state of Texas and part of Oklahoma and they were starting to branch out and run some some out of the territory towns based on their TV syndication which usually did well the first time and then died after that like Boston uh you had San Antonio which the in 1985 God damn, it was limping along, but there was still a territory. I remember watching the TV. That's where Fred Ottman was a big Bubba, Typhoon. Dusty loved big Bubbas because Ottman became his son-in-law. So San Antonio was territory. Obviously, the AWA, Vern Gagne, was not only still a territory, but now one of the geographically largest in the country, and they were just starting the downhill slide at that point after 83 with Hulkamania and uh, the hot business they were doing. You had Kansas City, a.k.a. the Central States. You had Calgary, maybe. Was that a point? Was that after the... Vince bought Calgary in 1984 and then within a year reneged on it and they started running again. So you kind of, and then Calgary ran 86, 87, 88. You had a territory there in that time frame, Right. And Calgary had shut down. And then the excuse Vince used to get out of that deal with Stu was Bruce Hart had started running again as Stampede. And that was, you know, where things went from there. Yes. And so he said, since Bruce Hart ran spot shows in front of 500 people calling it stampede wrestling the whole deal's off and i'm going to keep that 900 grand i was going to give you over the next nine years we also had portland uh obviously the wwf puerto rico was running at that time it was past the glory days it was after no it was it was not past the glory days because brody wasn't killed until 88 uh you also had montreal which they were running at the, that was 85 was the time of the Rougeaus and the Garvin's angle that did huge business in Montreal up to 15,000 people, right? Correct. You also had, um, you mentioned Mario Savoldi's ICW, although that wasn't really a territory as much as an early independent where they flew top guys in and used locals and ran different towns. They had TV, but I don't know if it ever made broadcast affiliates or if it was just like sports cable or whatever. It was on Sports Channel, but I think it's important to note that after the WWF's national push, after they took TV out of Allentown and Hamburg and went to White Plains and started doing stuff out of Canada, for a lot of the areas that were used to regular local WWF house shows, right. they started getting what would become the NWF with DC Drake or what would become Savaldi's ICW. Who would use the former WWWF names in top matches and then use the locals underneath? And it was kind of like the old-fashioned WWF spot shows. Also, was anything going on in Nova Scotia or the Maritimes? Where was Al Zink? Where was uh, Dupree? Um, there was definitely stuff going on. You definitely wouldn't have been going there. We wouldn't have been going there. <laughs> they ran seasonally. And then also, and we know there was wrestling in Japan and Germany and England. It said we're talking North America and Mexico. The Midnight Express and Jim Cornette were not going to go to Mexico. We were not going to go to Germany. 
Uh, the boys might have gone to Japan at some point. It just it didn't come up because we were too busy. I would not have made that trip. But nevertheless, those were so again, golly, that's all the options there were in 1985. Just those one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. Just those sixteen territories we mentioned. So things were thinning out. And before we start talking about where we would have gone at that time, I think we've also got to acknowledge the territories that had been lost in the previous three to five years that I think that's a place to start. These territories had just gone under and would we, or would we not, if they were still around have wanted to work there and the reasons for these territories going under are, are different, but with the exception of one kind of similar, with the exception of two kind of similar, Bruiser's WWA in Indiana had, uh, I they may have still been running a show or two in 1985, but the, it was over. The Sheik, because we got Bruiser, Indiana, The Sheik in Michigan and Ohio, it had gone, uh, what was it, 81-ish. Yeah, yeah. Mike LaBelle in Los Angeles, the Los Angeles territory, the first territory to start closed circuit television. They were so hot that the Olympic was selling out and they were closed circuiting the cards to, to movie theaters. Second biggest city in the country. It didn't go under due to Vince's national expansion. It was already limping along and LaBelle took an out and agreed to go to work with Vince and, and was the local promoter out there for a little while. But the actual Los Angeles territory, including all the Southern California towns and San Jose and Modesto's uptown arena, one of the most famous places in the world, thanks to Larry Barnheiser, the photographer. And that whole territory had basically just, it had aged out Mike LaBelle and, and rock rims is, tremendous Southern California histories go into great detail on this or history as well as the NorCal history. Mike LaBelle was never a guy that was in love with the wrestling business. His mother, Eileen Eaton and her husband, Cal were the boxing and wrestling promoters. They had the lease on the Olympic auditorium and they did the TV out of there. And for, but he wasn't, it wasn't like I love the wrestling business and I'm going to go down fighting. When things started going south, he wasn't going to put any money into it. And finally, the talent drifted away and you couldn't make money there. And it just aged out. It's straight up north from Los well, Angeles. Uh, go ahead. With L.A., there's a lot of different issues. Losing the TV and having to go to just Spanish language television was a big problem. Yeah. They lost their studio show. They lost Dick Lane. And then they lost a lot of prime talent. We can all go back now and romanticize about Piper and Chavo, but at the time, that was all there was. They had, At one point, L.A. was just stacked and had such great talent. By the end of the 70s, especially yeah. after they lost Piper, there wasn't very much. And we talked about Stu before. Vince had a deal with Mike LaBelle where Mike LaBelle was going to be the partner on the West Coast for the WWF because Mike LaBelle was the one who brought him in and ushered Vince around, him and Jeff Walton. And then Vince reneged on that deal, and there was a lawsuit, and Michael Bell got, uh, I don't think, anything. 
Well, he got to go home. And produce porn. Yeah, well, there you go. Um, and then as we said, Roy Shire in San Francisco, one of the not only all-time geniuses in the wrestling business, but also San Francisco in the Cow Palace most of the 60s was per capita the biggest drawing, one of the biggest drawn cities in the country for wrestling, especially in the early 60s when they opened up and Stevens first got hot. But same things happened with Roy Shire. He was an abrasive personality. He pissed off his TV station and lost his main TV. And he didn't have a good relationship with his local promoters in some of the spot show towns and the other Northern California towns and out into Nevada. And talent started leaving. And it just, and he finally, instead of running a territory, Shire had to just contract with existing promotions to try to fly in talent to just run the Cow Palace. And that was the beginning of the end. And so. San Francisco, what was, was that, was that gone by 81? Was it? Well, 81 was, was it 80. 80. Yeah. It was pretty much done completely by 81. And then Vern moved in. Yeah. And then also, uh, another longstanding territory that had been revolutionary in the business for so many years, Amarillo under Dory Funk senior. Dory senior had died in 1973. Terry and Dory inherited it and they had. God, what, who was it? Uh, Dory's brother-in-law was the booker at one point, and they had family members and people to run the territory when they were on the road because they were the NWA champion and or two of the biggest stars in the business during that time. But finally, they saw the writing on the wall. Amarillo had never been a big money territory. There weren't There weren't big population centers. There weren't, you know, major arenas but they did good steady consistent business in the small buildings and the smaller cities for years and years and years and scott teal just did an excellent amarillo history book that goes back to the turn of the 20th century and even though amarillo was never a big a big money territory or a place where they did stadium shows or whatever, because Dory Funk senior was in charge. And also because of Dean Denton and Dory Denton before them and, and the original Dutch Mantel and guys that went back to the 1920s, West Texas wrestling was big and whoever was the top guy was the toughest man in the world. So Dory Funk senior had that reputation all those years. But finally, at the end of the 70s, the TBS show was started on cable, Georgia Championship Wrestling. Terry Funk has said that they saw writing on the wall that cable was going to change everything and little territories probably weren't going to make it. And they sold Amarillo to Dick Murdoch and Blackjack Mulligan. And they ran it for a couple of years. And Murdoch and Mulligan were two of the biggest names in the history of the wrestling business as wrestlers. I don't know. I knew Murdoch well. I met Mulligan a couple of times. I don't know that I would have considered either one of them businessmen when it came to actually running something and having discipline. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And it didn't go. And Mulligan struck out a couple of times when he tried to be a promoter. Yes, including, well, when I was running Knoxville, Flair said, hey, I bought that fucking 10 years ago, me and Mulligan. You owe me some money. I said, well, I'll give you a piece of the losses. 
Um, <laughs> and then lastly, was Sam Muchnick in St. Louis. And St. Louis didn't go under. Sam Muchnick retired. And yeah. at the time, he was in his mid-70s. And he had been promoting St. Louis and made it the jewel of wrestling in the United States since 1945. So in 1982, January 1st, he retired and sold out the Checker Dome, the arena. They used to call it the Checker Dome when they had the Purina uh, sponsorship. But much Nick's last show in St. Louis drew 18,000 people because it was his retirement show and the whole city came out and paid tribute. But that was the beginning of the end of St. Louis because now after Sam retired, the remaining partners were Bob Geigel and Pat O'Connor and Harley had a bit of a piece. And I did Vern still had something of St. Louis, didn't he? Yes, at he that did. point. Yes, he did. But without Sam in charge, they started running it like they did Kansas City and a lot more questionable finishes. St. Louis was the straightest place in the country for wrestling. And they started ha ha it up a bit. And Larry Madison quit in 83 because he could see that things were not headed well and tried to start opposition. But that's when Vince in 84 came in and bought the local TV timeout from underneath them. And Larry had to end up doing a deal with Vince for a little while, which didn't last long, but the Kansas city office backed out of St. Louis because they were dying on the vine. And I think, what was it? Uh, it wasn't until 86 that Crockett started coming in, trying to resurrect things, but it was, well, they still ran, they still ran all the way up until when Crockett came in, but it was just, just nobody, just nobody noticed. It wasn't the same. They were bringing in guys from world class. They were bringing in different guys. And Matisic, there was some promise when he started up because he had Brody. Yeah. He had King Kong Brody. They were friends. And he was the first guy he brought Randy Savage in 83 to St. Louis. But I believe the show that was the big problem. I want to say the main event was Brody versus Mulligan. And then Mulligan no-showed. And it was after that. I want to say the network actually told Vince to get together with Larry Madison because he had a relationship yeah, with him. It, it was the TV station, uh, KPLR. Yeah. Yeah. They said, hey, he's Larry's the local genius, and this is the big-time company from New York. Why don't you guys get together, and we'll just make magic. And they, did, they didn't know how difficult it was for other promoters to work with Vince McMahon. wonder why. And it's very different uh, in the results and the people, but – Similar scenarios, you know, Ole Anderson thought he had it all figured out when he pushed Jim Barnett out, and he pushed Jim Barnett right into the arms of Vince McMahon when he needed yep. him. They thought those Kansas City guys, Geigel and Harley, they thought they were going to be just fine. Bob Brown pushing out Larry Matisic, and again, different than Barnett, but he got pushed right into the arms of Vince McMahon right when he needed him, right when he was going to launch Wrestling at the Chase, right when he was going to come into St. Louis. Worked out perfectly. There's so many things that happened for Vince in the WWF in 83 and 84 that were just set up perfectly for him. He was in the right place at the right time to get the right people. But those are the territories of note that have had folded in the previous five years before 1985. Indiana under Bruiser, Detroit and Ohio, or Michigan and Ohio under The Sheik, Los Angeles, Mike LaBelle, San Francisco, Roy Shire, Amarillo, The Funks, and, and Amarillo had produced... Just because of the pull that Dory Funk Sr. had, they had produced so many 
top name guys that that went there for experience and seasoning whatever and the japanese connection you know baba would send whoever uh that was that he wanted to make something out of in the future they'd go to work for the funks everybody from tenru to uh jumbo to fucking onita and then sam muchnick you know st louis uh hallelujah st louis the kingdom of wrestling those were all gone would we have gone there brian you asked that question any of those places and I got to start with Bruiser and Sheik because that's the that's the most familiar wrestling that I grew up with besides Tennessee wrestling because I could get the station from Bloomington, Indiana that showed Bruiser's show. That's the first one I saw. And if I went to visit Aunt Lola and Uncle Tommy in Cincinnati by Cracky, I would see the Sheik show. So I got to see a little bit of that as well as that being geographically the closest places to my home besides the Tennessee territory. And the thing about Indiana was it's hard to explain the Indiana territory bruisers, WWA was a kind of a territory in name only in terms of you, the guys underneath on the card, they lived there in Indiana and chances are a lot of them had real jobs and they moonlighted as wrestlers because look at a map of Indiana. It's fucking 240 miles from top to bottom and side to side, it's only about 160. So you can, you can go anywhere in the state in a matter of a couple hours from Indianapolis, which is right in the middle. And then the top guys that worked for Bruiser, the main event guys, they would come in and out except for the period of the war with the Sheik between 71 and 74. Otherwise, Bruiser and Snyder, Wilbur Snyder, his partner, had started running Indiana in 1964 because that was Bruiser's home and he had become one of the biggest stars in the business on the national TV and out of Chicago. And so had Wilbur Snyder. And they decided that they would take over the home territory. Because at the time, remember, Jim Barnett from the late 50s on was running the entire Midwest. He had Detroit and all of Michigan. He had Cincinnati and all of Ohio, except for Cleveland. He had uh, all of Indiana. And Indianapolis was a huge town. Indianapolis was booming in the 50s. They were doing 10,000, 12,000 people at the fairgrounds for the shows. Cowboy Bob Ellis was huge at that time, etc. Indianapolis was probably, in the 50s, the best wrestling town of all of these. And Cincinnati was huge in the 50s and into the 60s. And the Sheik had gotten over there stronger than he did in Indiana, just like Bruiser got over in Indiana stronger than he did in Ohio, but they were still major stars. In Cincinnati, the Gardens would do 10,000 people. But by the time that... Um, Bruiser and Snyder started running Indianapolis in 64. That's when Barnett was making plans to go to Australia and open up the first world championship wrestling. And we've mentioned how that he made the offer because Bruiser and Snyder, we found out through research, had already started running opposition. They were already going to run their own company in Indianapolis. So he made the offer to them like he made the offer to the Sheik. 
in Detroit. He said, I'll sell Detroit and that territory to the Sheik, and I'll sell Indianapolis to Bruiser and Snyder, and I'll go to Australia. And as the story goes, Sheik paid him all the installments over however long until he was all paid off, even though Barnett was in Australia, and he never heard a goddamn word from Bruiser and Snyder again. But anyway, so Indianapolis was a small territory, and Bruiser was a very big whale in a small pond. He was one of the biggest stars in wrestling. Everybody in the state of Indiana considered him the toughest man walking the face of the earth. It was like having a local Texas territory where Steve Austin was the top star. And then he would have a rotating crew of people that would come in and work against him, but he was always the top guy. And Snyder was the secondary babyface, and usually in a tag team. And then, as I mentioned, you would bring in other guys. The reason why top stars would want to work Indianapolis is because especially when the t business was hot and you were working against Bruiser on top in Indianapolis, you got a great payoff, but not every town. And we've mentioned that when I went to Fort Wayne for that minor league ball game appearance several years ago, the Fort Wayne Memorial Coliseum, the all time record for people in that building remained Dick, the Bruiser and Baron von Raschke from like 1972. They had a couple of big towns. You'd get big payoffs, but there was also a lot of spot shows. But that's the thing. Big Ernie Ladd didn't go to Lagudi. By the way, that is a real town. Sam Miniker would say every year when they did the county fairs, and we'll be in Lagudi <laughs> at the county fair, 730 on Thursday night. How do you spell that? I don't know if it's an L-A or an L-O, but then it follows G-O-O-T-I-E, I believe. Okay. Lagudi. But anyway, um, they beefed the territory up from 71 to 74 because Bruiser was still smarting that the Sheik had Detroit because Bruiser was big in Detroit too back in the day. And so he wanted to invade Michigan. And at that point, they started bringing in, and this unbelievably, I didn't know it at the time, but when I first started watching Indianapolis wrestling, they were in the middle of the hottest period they ever had as a company, and they were in the middle of a promotional war with the Sheik in Detroit. But I had no way of knowing this. I'm just watching the show, and I'm seeing 10,000 people packing the fucking building in Indianapolis watching Bobby Heenan take bumps, and Baron Von Raschke, and Cowboy Bob Ellis, and Big Ernie Ladd, and Blackjack Mulligan, and Lanza, and Dick the Bruiser, and the Crusher. And I'm like, holy shit, this is great, right? Well, now with hindsight, when Bruiser opened up and started running Detroit, that was another major market he could draw talent and give them payoff out of. And even though Bruiser was losing the war, it made the Sheik's business hotter too. It was kind of like a, the, the promotional war, the Monday night wars, rising tide lifts all boats. Sheik goes on a run. We're in 72 and 73. He's having multiple sellouts in a row at the Kobo, which is 11, 12,000 people. Bruiser would run the Olympia Stadium in Detroit against those shows and draw 6,000, 7,000. So there'd be 20,000 people going to live wrestling in Detroit in the same night. 
So all of a sudden, you get the Black Jacks and Ernie Ladd, and then came the Valiant Brothers, and he had Bobby Heenan as a manager. And also, because Bruiser had an ownership interest with Vern and everybody in, in Chicago, Bruiser's main guys could sometimes get on the card in Chicago, get another payoff of a major market. So from 71 to 74, while that was going on, there was money to be made for the main event guys working the Indiana Territory because the the opportunity to go into Detroit, the opportunity to get booked in Chicago. The Indiana Territory, even in the summer, when they would do the county fair shows, which were sold shows, the fair board would say, I'll give you $5,000, bring me a wrestling show. Okay. They only ran three or four nights a week it, in, in the busy times. So that's what Blackie Guzman, who I never knew, Manuel Blackie Guzman, yeah. was one of the legendary names in all of Lucha Libre. He was partners and opponents with El Santo. He was a huge draw. Paul Bosch loved him. Paul Bosch loved him. Same guy in his 50s is living in Indiana for some reason and working preliminaries. Blackie Guzman, he did jobs on the prelims. But a lot of... Um, and that's uh, true with um, the, for some reason, even Indianapolis had a high Hispanic population in those days, and they had a ton of Hispanic undercard guys. Uh, El Bracero, Jose Martinez, et cetera, et cetera. Also, I don't know that he ever really drew any money anywhere else, but Billy Red Cloud, for whatever reason, was so hot in the early 70s for Bruiser, in Indiana and Michigan, a, a fucking American Indian, right? With the whole get-up that they made him the champion at one point. And Sailor Art Thomas, he was a huge baby face, a big jacked-up bodybuilder. He was a, a, a... Art Thomas in the 50s, there were no... There were almost no bodybuilders in wrestling, and there were almost no black guys in wrestling. Well, here's a black bodybuilder. It looked as good as the Magnificent Zulu did 15 years later. So they loved him. But again, it was a territory where you kind of worked part-time, and if you were in the main events and you did other things, you could make good money, but just Chief Bobby Bold Eagle. Like I said, Ernie Ladd wouldn't go to Lagoody, but Bobby Bold Eagle, the kids loved him. He was Bob Boyer, an Italian that lived in Indiana, but he had the whole Indian outfit. So bottom line if this territory had still been around and was doing business like it was in the, the war of 71 to 74, it would have been a place for a manager and a tag team to go a la the Valiant Brothers and Bobby Heenan because they were the classic bleach blonde tag team and he was the classic manager. And they had that, that run there in Indiana is what propelled them to go to New York and have the WWWF tag team titles and go to San Francisco and go to Georgia, go to all the places Valiant Brothers went because they not only did good business there, but they're working with, when Bruiser brought Bruno Sammartino in, when he was in between titles in New York, Bruiser and Bruno were a, ta a tag team. They worked a program with the Valiant Brothers. When Bruno won the WWF belt and had to go back to New York, they dropped the belts to the Valiant Brothers, 
And you know he went right back up to Vince Sr. and said, hey, great, classic, bleach blonde heel team. Looks like the Graham brothers. Bring them in. Well, plus so, he liked John Sullivan, uh, Johnny Valiant, because he was a local Pittsburgh guy. Well, yeah, and, and and Johnny was from Pittsburgh. But, I mean, you know, Bruno's not going to say, this guy's my best friend. They're the shits. Bring them in and put the belts on them. You know, he recommended them. But anyway, so you could work that territory. The trips were short. You could be home a lot. If you were main event guys, you could make money, especially in that period of time. The underneath guys, probably not so much. Uh, but that had been, we were, that was 10 years beforehand. And I would have liked to have worked just because it's the next territory up to, from home. I grew up watching the TV. But honestly, if even if Bruiser's territory had still been what it was 10 years previously, there were places to go as, with us being hot off a good run and having contacts, there were places to go where we could have made a lot more money. So, and to be honest, also the reason why Bruiser's territory went out of business, it aged out. Bruiser was still on top. Snyder finally retired to Florida, but he would come back up for the Indiana Indianapolis show once a month or once every three weeks or whatever. And then he retired from that. And the only new guys, the young talent, Spike Huber, Bruiser's son-in-law, Steve Regal, Wilbur's son-in-law, not saying they weren't talented, but they didn't go out and try to find new young guys to replace. I mean, for fuck's sake, Moose Cholak was driving a bus or a cab or something in Chicago and could still come to Indianapolis and be in a semifinal match. So it just got, when the, the when the promotional war ended, more of the top main talent dispersed because they didn't have as many payoffs as they were used to and not as sizable ones and not changing the talent. And Sam Miniker had, had been the booker and the TV announcer since 1971 as they were going into 79, 80, 81. Nothing had changed except the crowds, which had dropped. <laughs> this is, the same old guys were there and they were 10 years older, the same TV. They didn't even do uh, the TV in Indianapolis was the underneath matches of the Indianapolis house show that occurred every three weeks or so. So even the stars, like if Ox Baker was the champion, he'd go out and he'd beat the shit out of Prince Pullins in six minutes and they'd show that on television. Then Ox Baker versus Bob Ellis for the world title would not be televised. But because also they only ran an expo center show or the fairgrounds in Indianapolis every three or four weeks, they wouldn't get enough shows to last till the next time. So they would rerun a show from six months before or a year or two years before. If in the main event or in one of the show, one of the matches, somebody on the next expo center card was featured in that show, getting a good win. They'd fucking play that two year old show again. I saw some matches between Cowboy Bob Ellis and Baron Von Raschke, I guarantee you, 10, 12, 14 times. So it was just, I guess the classic way of wrapping it up and we'll move on is that my mother made the most perceptive statement to me that she had ever made in her life when she announced that she had seen a wrestling program 
on TV the night before, and it started this whole thing. I said, oh, can I watch next week? She said, Jimmy, this show looks just like the wrestling shows did when I first moved to Louisville in 1951. This was 1972, and she was right, except for color. It was not only shot the same way, in the same building, it featured the same names. So Indianapolis has a fond place in my heart. It is not a place that the Midnight Express would necessarily have gone as a choice. Although the trips are short, it's close to home. If you were on top, you could make some money, but nothing to write home about. It was all, and Bruiser and Snyder made a fortune because they owned the thing. And as I've mentioned, being a promoter was licensed to print money. Bruiser had a custom-made bed in his bedroom with a mattress 20 feet wide and had a home with the only urinal in a private bathroom in Indianapolis. Now, well, maybe beyond Indianapolis, (laughs) it might have been the whole state because not too many people have urinals in their house. Might have been the whole state. He wanted to feel at home. Uh, Any Indianapolis questions before we move to the Sheik in Detroit? I think you covered it pretty well, actually. This one, I had to go back and forth on because even though Indianapolis was a magic town and Bruiser and Heenan and all this stuff, the Sheik's territory was much stronger. A much It was a place you could actually go most of the time it was in existence and work a regular schedule. And he, he had not only Detroit, but the rest of Michigan, Grand Rapids, Lansing. He had most of Ohio, including Cincinnati. And Cincinnati, through the late 50s, into the 60s, even the early 70s, Cincinnati probably was second over that period of time only to uh, Indianapolis in terms of drawing big crowds. Detroit peaked later on. Detroit peaked in the early 70s, as far as I can tell. Um, They did big crowds in the 50s also under Barnett, but Sheik did the best of anybody in any of these spots with it in the 70s because he had that hot streak in the early 70s, along with the Toronto streak where he was selling 20 something thousand tickets a month in Detroit and the same amount in Toronto. And that ha- that went on for several years. So in Columbus, Ohio, which was huge under Al Haft in the fifties and later on would get hot when Ole resurrected it in the early eighties off the TBS TV. They didn't set the world on fire, but uh, during the Sheik's time, but they they had a lot of show Dayton, Ohio, Toledo, Ohio. So the Sheik had more towns, and Detroit was a fucking money machine in the sixties and seventies. And that's when the economy there was still good, and that's when the you know the auto industry was not on its ass, and the Sheik got over and built that thing to where. You could again you could make money, especially if you were on top and being taken care of. And the Sheik was notorious for taking care of people he wanted to take care of and, and also not taking care of people he didn't want to take care of. But you could work full time. There were some long trips, but Detroit to Cincinnati ain't just a hop, skip, and a jump, but it's not anything like Mid South or Calgary or those trips. So and the Sheik always had 
a large variety of talent in his territory. And plus, he had tremendous pull with the NWA because since as one of the biggest box office attractions in the business, he not only ran his own territory, but he worked out dates. He'd go to Los Angeles and work for LaBelle against Bobo Brazil or Freddie Blassie or whatever when he wanted to go shopping on Rodeo Drive and buy new suits. And he would go to, you know, to Atlanta or to Tennessee or to wherever the fuck. So he was always dealing. He was always at the NWA meetings. So he was always dealing with the other promoters. It wasn't hard to get talent. And when his business was up, it wasn't hard to to keep him. The thing that I look at on the old Detroit shows during that promotional war time is the fact that he started having 12 and 13 matches. You've seen those old body press programs. I have them, yeah. A dozen matches and name after name after name of NWA stars and top guys from different territories. I don't know what the payoffs were like, except the guys at the top you know, that Sheik took care of made out okay. But when you got 40 guys on a card, even if you sell 12,000 tickets, that's diluting the payroll. And we know from Brian Solomon, who did the book on the Sheik that'll be out earlier this year, that I think it was 1973. It was one year in the early 70s. The Sheik declared $400,000 worth of personal income. That's what he declared on his taxes. We've mentioned the cash aspect of wrestling promotion and etc 400 grand in 1973 what's that uh about a million and a half these days but i don't know if this territory to pertains to our exercise i don't know if it would have been conducive to the midnight express or myself well again those are two different things because it was a territory with a lot of managers Although the managers were typically with the Sheik. Yes. And see the and and you know, and boy, boy howdy, I would have I would have loved that except for the heat, uh, to manage the Sheik at some point. That would have been cool. But again, most of the time and and you know, they did have managers. I remember the, you know, um George Cannon was there with the kangaroos and it said they would use managers yeah, and they had true. tag teams. But the crew, I'm trying to figure out a way to verbally describe this. How would I describe it any other way? Possibly sign language. But to verbally describe it, it was the Sheik's style of wrestler that he primarily wanted to book. He wanted to book the Wild Men, the Abdullah the Butchers, the Pampiro Furpos, or he'd make one, J.B. Psycho, or Killer Brooks. The tag teams were a little bit more scientific. The Love Brothers, the Kangaroos, uh, Ben Justice and Guy Mitchell. But there was no, it wasn't, it wasn't a territory that was high on athleticism and hard hitting work and hot finishes that made you want to come back and see returns except for the Sheiks. The style was more rooted in the in the fifties where, you know, she got over and, and learned his shit. And so as a promoter, you tend to always present that style of wrestling. So if you'd have taken, if the 1975 big time wrestling 
with the Sheik was still around in 1985 and you dropped the Midnight Express and the Rock and Roll Express in the middle of it, it would look like, you know, here was Wild Bull Curry and the fucking Sheik and all of a sudden Tiger Mask and Dynamite Kid broke out. It was a completely different style. We fit in the Carolinas because of the the tradition of athletic good workers there for many, many years. I'm not saying the people in Detroit weren't good workers or even great athletes, but it was a different style and it was more the punch and kick and it was less high spots. And I know people now are going, well, Cornette hates high spots. No, I love high spots. I hate gymnastics. So it was, it was a little bit, it was a different style that maybe the midnight might not have translated too well. If I got a monster like the Sheik liked, well, I can manage monsters. Uh, so I might have worked there. But since they were out of business in 1985, we didn't have to work. But I would have liked to have worked for the Sheik and worked that territory in the early 70s when it was up and you could make money if it if the opportunity had presented itself. So that's one I would I don't I don't know if I would have actually unless I if I had any other choices. I would have loved Indiana just because it's close to home, but I don't think I would have worked there for for business reasons. The Sheik's territory, I probably would have. Does that make sense? It makes sense. I'm trying to visualize you in that territory. I can visualize you. I can't really visualize Dennis. I can visualize Bobby there more than I can Dennis. You can visualize Bobby anywhere. That's true. Um, I can't, I can't visualize Stan. Because as soon as, as soon as Yukon Moose Cholak said, I'll hit you with a splash, or fucking Bobo Brazil said, I'll give you the Coco Clop in the corner, he's like, fuck. Because that's, that's one thing. Again, the Sheik did stay with the same names for quite some time. You could see the same main event matchup in the Sheik's territory in 1977 as you saw in 1967. And even though it wasn't the Sheik's, they were probably wrestling in 1957. Um, let's talk about St. Louis real quick, because I would, obviously that wasn't a territory. You didn't get booked into the St. Louis territory. You got invited to come to St. Louis to appear on the event is the best way to say it. St. Louis stood on its own and we've said, talked about it so much and read the programs and everything over the shows. I know a lot of our listeners have the history, but basically Sam Muchnick had started promoting St. Louis in 1945 before the advent of television, before the formation of the modern territories as they existed. There were still booking offices. There was a booking office in Nashville that supplied talent to all sorts of local promoters around its area. And there was a booking office in Amarillo and there's a booking office in where this place and that place. But since there was no television, the parameters of the territories and how they were determined was based on guys not only running towns, but getting television coverage in a specific region and pretty much making it like a fort. Where during in that region, the people primarily knew your wrestlers and, and your programs and your shows and nobody else's. That didn't exist in the 40s per se, but Muchnick would bring in the very top wrestlers in the business 
to main event to challenge for the title or to be in the the you know the main event matches and obviously when he was able to reconcile with Luthez and Thez dropped his and his father's promotion. Well, they didn't drop it, but they kind of started working behind the scenes, and eventually it became one. He would use, Muchnick would bring guys from the Kansas and Missouri area to fill out the cards because Orville Brown, who was originally going to be the first NWA champion after it was formed until he was in a car wreck and lost his sight, that's why they picked Thez. Orville Brown was a big mover and shaker in the wrestling business as one of the top wrestlers in the, in the world. And also he was from Kansas promoting in that area. That's how the Kansas part of the equation in the central States became inextricably locked with St. Louis because of their, not only their proximity next door to each other, but also because Orville Brown had been a bigger name in the forties in wrestling than Sam Muchnick was. And then when Muchnick and Thez got together and Muchnick got Buddy Rogers to come to work for him and established himself as the dominant promoter in St. Louis, it was still, it was a place where they brought the best in and built the big matches and the world title was most important. And the main event stars were main event guys that you heard about in the magazines or in the newspapers. And then the opening matches would be guys from the local area. And so you only got a chance to work for Sam Muchnick if you came to St. Louis and worked on a show in St. Louis. He didn't run spot shows. He didn't run any other markets. So if you were a a top guy in another territory, but you got the attention of Sam Muchnick in some fashion, or you were a top guy and they were wanting to prep you for the NWA championship or just to be a, a bigger guy, you would get booked into St. Louis and that's how you knew you'd made it. And that's how you knew you were getting a build that they brought flair there. They brought DiBiase there. They brought everybody that was going to be somebody in the NWA came to St. Louis. The payoffs for the main event were off the fucking charts. We've documented them and we've talked about them. You could make up to $6,000 for an NWA title match in St. Louis in the, in the big building, the Checker Dome, the arena, and several thousand in the keel on sellouts. But the opening match guys might get $187.50 because Sam Muchnick paid like the promoters in the before the TV days and the main event drew the house and got almost all the money. It would have been a privilege to be asked to come to work for Sam Muchnick in St. Louis and me and the Midnight Express would have done it in a heartbeat. I'm not sure he would have asked us because I think was Bobby Heenan, the only manager that he ever used or did he break down over the last couple of years and use anybody else? I'm trying to remember I'm who trying he would have used after Heenan with Lanza. Point is, much, Sam Muchnick did not use managers. He felt they were a distraction. And tag team matches usually didn't main event St. Louis unless it was combinations of former world champions like Jack Briscoe and Terry Funk teaming up against Harley Race and Gene Kaniski or whatever the case. Um, so it would have been a, a privilege and an honor 
but I don't know that we would have worked there. I mean, you might have been on the card, but I don't think we would have gotten a multi-month or year push as and he didn't did he did he even have a tag team title? They just used the Central States tag title after a while, didn't they? I think so. So, you know, so that was one of those deals where, you know, I would have loved to have worked for Sam Muchnick any time just to say that I did it and a chance to be part of that history, but I don't think we fit. I agree. Wasn't, I mean, we, wasn't we a tag team town, wasn't a manager town. We could have gone in and worked the third match, you know, but. What, well, here's the other, other I mean, that's the other catch. You guys could have come in and worked a third match and more than likely they would have recognized a reaction you probably would have gotten for working your style of match. And that may have changed things. You never know. It might have now that you mention it, since we're just what abouting, <laughs> what about that? Um, and that may, and but by the time I, I've never been so disappointed because we did actually get to work St. Louis and we did get to work the Keel auditorium in 1985. But that was three years after Sam had retired. And I've told this story. We went there in the house in the Keel Auditorium back when tickets were probably eight and ten bucks, $12,000. There wasn't even 1,500 people in the Keel Auditorium. It was like going to a funeral. That historic old building, that giant curtain on that stage. Um, you could just you could smell the history and you could you could see Buddy Rogers standing there under those old lights or whatever, and it was just twelve hundred or thirteen hundred dreary fucking people watching a lackluster card. And it hurt my heart. But we made it. We just made it three years too late. Um uh, and so other other than that, I mean, you know, they probably if Sam had still been around when we got with the rock and roll on Crockett's TV, they might have brought us in and had that match. And that would have been lovely. And I'm sure it would have tore the house down. But, uh, you know, it, in, in the, in the glory days, Sam Muchnick really didn't need much of anybody. So we needed to be on his card more than he needed us on his card. But yes. Yeah, so if we're keeping track, wouldn't have worked Indianapolis, would have worked Detroit for the, the money, the trips, and the business, but not sure how we would have fit in. Would have loved to work for Sam Muchnick, but it wouldn't have been a full-time job. I got to go next to San Francisco. If, if, if there was anything going on at that point in time with Roy Shire, I would have loved to have been a part of it. Yeah. Um, you know of what? Of course, there wasn't. In theory, I mean, Bill Watts ended up liking Roy Shire and learning a lot from him, maybe learning how to yell at people from him. But... Yeah, that, I, I swear to God, it sounds exactly like that's where he learned it from. But I don't know if you would have liked this book. You like Bill Watts. You had no problem with that. But Roy Shire, you know, Bill Watts had a lot of detractors, but there were people who recognized. Well, I mean, people recognized Roy Shire's genius, but people didn't like him the way some people like Bill Watts. Well, I, 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 hey, I wasn't going to fucking take him out to the movies on a date. Here's the, if the San Francisco territory, as it had been in the glory days, was still operating, and you got to get Roy Shire got Ray Stevens over. 
as the hottest box office attraction in the business. Roy Shire put together and mentored uh, Ray Stevens and Pat Patterson as the greatest tag team in the business because Roy Shire had been Ray Stevens' brother in the 50s, the Shire brothers. Yeah, in fact, he uh, thought he was going to get a piece of the territory, too. Yes, and, and Ray Stevens told me that. He said, uh, they had a law in California, if you were a promoter, you couldn't be a wrestler. But he was supposed to get a piece of the territory after it got going under the table from his ex-brother. And that never happened. But but here's the, Roy Shire is, a, here's somebody who Bill Watts acknowledges learning booking from. Here's somebody that that was a, a booker for the hottest wrestling city in the country in San Francisco and drawing those sellouts at the Cow Palace and the revolutionary tag teams of Stevens and Patterson and the logic that Roy Shire put into everything and the way that he made people believe. I can, from reading Rock Rims's books, from working for Bill Watts, from knowing other people involved and the influences, you can see that's where Watts got it from. You've heard the stories of the heat in the Cow Palace where Afa and Sika, the Samoans, they had to smarten them up and break them into the business because they were jumping the heels and kicking the shit out of them at the Cow Palace. They, they, they had heat, which is, I think, where Watts got it from because Shire knew how to make everything mean something. And also, there was San Francisco had great workers and great talent. The Midnight Express would have fit. If, if Patterson and Stevens fit in, the Midnight Express would have fit in. San Francisco, it's a short trip territory, Northern California, plus San Francisco compared to like Los Angeles is like trading your 5,000 square foot mansion for a tent. I've always hated Los Angeles and Southern California. It's so flat, so dry, the traffic, bleh. Northern California has got those beaches and those mountains and the hate Ashbury and the cool places, right? Summer of love. I could have lived there and I would have loved to work for Roy Shire just to learn from him. And I mean, you know, I liked Bill Watts, but it's not like Bill Watts was the friendliest person in the world, but I was learning from a college professor. And also back in the day, you could make money in San Francisco because of San Francisco. You might not make a lot of money in San Bernardino or Sacramento or whatever, but especially for the main event guys, the Cow Palace payoffs. Stevens also told me he made between 100 and 150 grand in a year in what, 1962, 63, when they had their first hot stretch. What would that be today? 600 grand? So you could make money, short trip territory, great place, great place to live back then in the 60s and 70s if you could stay away from the Manson family. And you get to learn booking from Roy Shire. I would have done that. I would have done that in a heartbeat. You wouldn't have done that? Depends on when. <laughs> it depends on when. Possibly. I mean, I don't know if I would have. I wouldn't have been a good wrestler because I wouldn't have put up with someone like Roy Shire. I would have had a lot of problems pretty quickly. Ah, come on. But I. He, just because he spit his tobacco juice on the floor of the TV station? 
just because he was, I haven't heard anyone say anything good about him. Yeah, no, pretty much everybody hated him. Everyone hated him except Bill Watts, which is funny. <laughs> well, okay, and then again, Watts never said he wanted to fucking, you know, marry the guy, but he learned. He learned. And he was uh, obviously a pretty good teacher and pretty good student because it was replicated. But I would I would have picked, and that's where we're going next, Los Angeles. I would have picked San Francisco over Los Angeles because, as I mentioned, that part of the country, every time I went to Los Angeles for Crockett or for Vince, I just was like, what the fuck? And by the same token, the, the, the if you, as we both have read Rock Rims's books, the approach to the business was completely different in Southern California than Northern California. And the booking was all almost pretty much just on the fly. And a lot of times, and, and rightfully so, LaBelle would let his top guys call most everything. And Freddie Blassie was over like God and was, you know, was in on everything as he should have been because he drew the majority of the money. But, it, you know, that was, it was a different type of territory. And the, I've talked to people who worked there in the dying days. Tom Pritchard got a chance to to work there like the year before they went under. And uh, Kenny Wayne had been out there and Adrian Street. And Tom said he liked it because it was, you know, he's like 20 years old and, you know, living in Los Angeles and a lot of girls, I guess. And, you know, whatever, even though there was no money, he was he just got into business. So he was just glad to be in the business. It, it, there was money there for the main event guys when the territory was up, but by this point, it was down and on the way out. I don't know. I don't know. The, it was a short trip territory, because, but at the same time, in your, when you're in Los Angeles, it takes two hours to go across the street. Now it does. 40 years ago, I don't know. But... um High high living expenses all the way out on the West Coast in California, that far away from my home. Nobody that I'm really anxious to learn from, like a Roy Shire or a Dory Funk Sr. or an Eddie Graham or a whatever. And the style was, again, what it was, it was tailored to the Sheik and Fred Blassie and John Tolos and people with snakes around their their necks and etc or the the lucha influence i don't know if the midnight would have maybe we could have had some real rip snorters with gordman and goliath uh but between the two california territories i believe i would have picked san francisco for the reasons that i mentioned i don't think you would have fit into los angeles too well <laughs> after they lost their english speaking television you well, would have that's been another perfect before yeah. them. <laughs> But no, then I could have got Alex to come out and say what <laughs> Kim Cornette is trying to say is a mama my daddy. Okay. Corny says. Corny says. That Dick Lane better watch out next Friday night. And then see also that, you know, Dick Lane, they had the, the recognized announcer. The most recognized announcer in wrestling was Dick Lane in the early 70s, but not because of wrestling. Is because of roller derby, because all of the wrestling shows were still regionally syndicated. They were only in their territories. But since Dick Lane did the the roller derby or the roller games and the L.A. T. Birds, 
which were nationally syndicated. L.A. had the only nationally syndicated wrestling announcer in the business at that time, but he just wasn't doing wrestling when he was nationally syndicated. However, uh, I got to go to Amarillo next because, again, Dory Funk Sr., and maybe even not in 1985, I don't even know that I knew what kind of impact that Dory Funk Sr. had on the modern era of professional wrestling since the, the, the last 50 years of the 20th century and the first 20 of this one. How he, how many people he trained, how many people he broke in, how many things that he started and got going, how many relationships he had with the other major promoters and bookers in the business. And all from this little podunk town in West Texas. And I mean, Amarillo used to be a territory in those days where that was so geographically isolated from everything else and so cut off and got no outside the territory news coverage that if somebody in Florida or Georgia or the Carolinas or California or wherever was doing an angle where they got their leg broken and they were going to be out for three months. They'd go to Amarillo. Nobody'd find them. It was, it was, but at that same point, they did, they were another territory that I said, they did good business in small markets, consistent business for years and years and years. And to have the old man there who had, a deciding vote at the NWA meetings on who became champion, who was personal friends with every major figure in the business and could put a word in for you and make your career. And, you know, they loved wild Tennessee type wrestling down there in West Texas, the, the blood and the guts and the, and the violence and the wildness. I probably would have been knifed or strung up within six weeks. I think, you know, if they liked if they liked the Funk Brothers as a team, they'd probably like the Midnight Express. It, it wasn't a money territory, but for the, and it certainly wasn't a place that you went because you just were dying to live in Amarillo, Texas, for some reason. And, and even then, a lot of the people in the territory that got over, like Ricky Romero, he was from there, and the, the you know the father of the young bloods a lot of the locals would stay there and get over and not have to go anywhere else but to work for uh, Dory Funk senior if if he had still been around if the territory had still been around i would i would think you'd almost you weren't going to make any money but you'd learn some stuff that's a place that you went when you didn't have a better option but you wanted to be at least doing something positive. Well, I'll learn, I'll get experience, I'll get I'll get uh, uh contacts, get the old man to put a word in for me at the NWA convention, whatever the case. It it that's not it's not somewhere you went out of a sense of wow, I'm going to make a ton of money and I'm going to enjoy the fuck out of living in Amarillo, Texas. But you're it's like you're going to fucking mathematics school with Einstein. What do you think, Brian? Uh, I think you would have not liked the money in Amarillo. And uh, if it was 1985, you would have hated it. But if it was in the mid-70s, <laughs> you would have had a good time. Yes, yes. And that's why I, this is all whataboutism because... So basically, 
out of the three defunct areas, I wouldn't want to work Indianapolis. I probably would have worked Detroit. I wouldn't want to work L.A., but I probably would have worked San Francisco. I would have died to work St. Louis, and I would have loved to work underneath Dory Funk Sr. That's where we're at so far. So now, in coming installments, <laughs> we're going to talk about the places we actually could have gone and what the money was like and what the talent was like and what the living conditions and travel conditions were like in 1985. So we don't have to make up anything else because these places were all actually still running and still operating. So again, to reiterate the choices and we're going to be covering these, obviously we've just talked for fucking half an hour, 45 minutes on the places that were defunct and whether I would have wanted to work there. So going through these, we're going to go into a little bit more detail and we'll do a few apiece on various programs until we get them all in. And then, boy, for 2022 holiday season, this will be a great omnibus. But so far left, we've got Florida, Georgia, Continental, Memphis, the Carolinas, Mid-South, Dallas, San Antonio, the AWA, Kansas City, Portland, the WWF, Montreal, Puerto Rico, poor old Savoldi's ICW, and maybe Calgary depending on whether Bruce was running a spot show that month or not. That's what we got left. Which one are you most excited to talk about, Brian? Uh, I don't know if excitement's the word. <laughs> Excitement is in the air. It's interesting. I mean, in my head, I can kind of figure out what's what. I think it'll be interesting to hear what you think about going to the WWF a year and a half earlier than you talked to Vince. That could be kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of the interesting places to work were kind of done by that point in time. So when we're talking about, like, oh, the Midnight Express going to Florida, I mean, it's an interesting conversation, but knowing the realities of how things worked out, God, thank God you didn't go there. Well, so it's a weird exercise because we're talking about all these what ifs, but thank God every one of these. Yeah. There would have been a chance because you know what didn't happen until late January 1985 Eddie Graham's suicide. Right. If they had asked us in December 1984, you want to go to work, Florida and work for Eddie Graham? Yes. Yes. Yes, please. Uh, See, that's where it gets interesting. There's, there's where you get an interesting little wrinkle. What if you guys had gone there instead of the Freebirds? Yeah. But again, and I don't want to do this now. We're going to do this on a future installment, you said. Yes. And, and I have a feeling if a lot of these installments will come over the next few weeks. So we have some stuff, fun stuff to talk about over the holidays. But I'll tell you what. If we'd have gone to Florida to work for Eddie Graham and ended up working for Mike Graham, talk about the ultimate bait and switch there. I love you, Mike. I'm kidding. Uh, but anyway. He's so not listening. I Well, I know that. And he wouldn't have been even if he was still alive. <laughs> I just thought I'd shout that out to him from wherever he was. But anyway, but yeah, that's what we're going to be talking about, in, uh, among other things, over the next few weeks is an, an examination of these territories in 1985 and what it was like and what the positives and negatives were of working in those various places. Otherwise than that, we've completed our Turkey Day edition of the Jim Cornette Experience Gobble Gobble. Aren't you happy? Delighted. Just delighted, and I'm even more excited about the drive-thru coming up in a few days filled with listener questions. 
Well, as soon as you find some listeners <laughs> and read the questions. We'll see about that. All right. Hey, we hope everybody had a great holiday weekend and we're coming up on more of them. So we'll be doing a lot of this over the month of December where we just josh and talk about stuff that we want to talk about. And otherwise, uh, Brian, any closing comments or I'll wrap this thing up? Wrap this thing up? I have no closing comments, no. Okay. Oh, wait, wait, one, well, you one, put a comma after I, I did. I did it wrong. But one closing yes. comment. Egg. 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 I, still, I can't get over the egg because when you think about how it came to happen, I know this isn't it. I know it's part of the movie, but I just visualized the meeting like, well, Vince, we really want to do something special to get people really interested. There's a lot of buzz about AEW. Not that it's hurting our business, but we need to do something to show people with it. Oh, yeah. Hey, just a, a big thing. You want us to do like a, someone will win a championship, a title match? No, 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 no. I mean, an opportunity? No, no. What do you think they should win? An egg. An egg. An egg? Like a special egg? An egg. A million dollar egg? No, a hundred million dollars egg. hundred million from Cleopatra. It's just, it's so ridiculous. It's so bad. And someone there thought it was good. No, that's the thing. Nobody thought it was good. They just couldn't disagree with him. He thought it was that's good. That's even worse. He thought it was good. That means somebody thought it was good. All right, somebody. Yeah. Uh, you know, that was always the, the biggest thing when you had to try to disagree with Vince. <laughs> and you'd try to figure out, well, how can I say this? Well, I'll just go ahead and say it. Because I usually would just go ahead and say it. Vince, that's kind of fucking shitty. <laughs> what about this? Anyway, an excellent ending to our program, which has been exhausting nah. today. Yeah. Egg. Yeah. A rock. But we'll be back with The Rock and his eggs and even more on the drive through which is Brian Last show. Yeah. So it will be an, 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 a, a complete omelet of wrestling <laughs> programming and talk. We're just going to mix the whole thing up there and it'll just be, there used to be a talk show, a morning talk show in Louisville back in the seventies called omelet. It was in the morning. Milton Metz, one of the legendary Louisville hey, broadcasting names. Let's Milton go Metz. Metz. Let's go Metz. No, it was M E T Z. Ah, oh, damn it. Milton Metz was the host and it was omelet because they covered a variety of topics and things over breakfast so it was just like an omelet of things and that was the name of that show the name of this show is over with folks we'll see you on the drive-thru and maybe we'll do florida on that one on territory talk and until then i hope everyone enjoyed their turkeys hope everyone enjoyed their drumsticks hope everyone enjoyed their stuffing and if you didn't enjoy it well stuff it and until next time, thank you, fuck you, and bye-bye, everybody. Wednesday nights, I get to stay up late. Which Kenny Omega while I masturbate. Hey, Mom, I need to watch this show. Meltzer says I'm in the key demo. Meltzer says I'm in the key demo. My mom's baby
children that are at the top of the car. He trained himself in his own backyard. And this is shit everyone should get. Well, everyone except Jim Cornette. Wednesday nights I get to stay up late. Which Kenny Omega while I masturbate. Who needs women for hanging round in bars? When you can watch the Bucks get seven stars When you can watch the Bucks turn seven stars Dynamite's the word Best ever tag team division Haven't you heard? We've got Jericho Orange Cassidy and Michael Rio Like Tony, I can fancy Title tournament, now we're cooking And I can wait to hear what Cody has to say When Marcus Stunt goes all the way Wednesday nights I get to stay up late Watch Kenny Omega while I masturbate Hey mom, don't come in Go away, I'm watching wrestling Go away, I'm watching wrestling Wrestling heaven. Don't listen to Corny, he hasn't been relevant since 87. He thinks that Luchasaurus can't work a lick, or that Bobby Eaton could hold a candle to either Matt or He wants to cut up our heroes with a rusty fishing knife, or get them in the hot tub to play Scott the Submarine with him and his wife. And no, Mom, I'm not bitter. This has nothing to do with Jim blocking me on Twitter. And now, here comes Nero. Wearing pajamas like me, he's my hero The young bucks could shoot on Buzz Sawyer Make Brock Lesnar take a Canadian destroyer Don't come in, Mom! Don't come in! Are you touching yourself again? No. Did you change the Wi-Fi password? Mom! Oh, no. Wednesday nights I get to stay up late Watch Kenny Omega while I masturbate Hey mom, I need to watch this show Elser says I'm in the key demo I'm 39, I'm in the key demo I'm a single male, I'm in the key demo oh, Elser says I'm in the key demo